Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm whisper talking. It's three in the morning. And uh, uh, very last minute decided this week I am going to watch this uh, last minute drop by one Taylor Swift of the folklore sessions at some pond somewhere. I honestly, I've been a little bit busy today and I don't even really know what it is and I'm very excited. And I just figured I'd live kind of review and react for you if that's cool. This is going to be long. This is going to be windy. This will be filled with ums and ers and I don't even, I don't know. Sometimes I try to prioritize speed over quality when I want to be, like, I, I think it's really fun when within fandoms when you can, like, enjoy and celebrate something and then get to discuss it after. And the best part is, like, discussing it after. So I wanted to be sure I could get this up and, you know, if you want to talk about the uh, show documentary what are we calling this <laughs> um, for longer than it actually airs itself then you've come to the right place welcome back to the be there in five podcast i'm kate kennedy i'm a, a podcaster an author a pop culture commentator but more importantly a uh, diehard taylor swift fan i love to talk t swift canon i love to uh, examine aspects of the fandom universe. I've spent a lot of real estate uh, talking about her on this podcast. And every time she does something that's uh, provides us good long form content, it's thrilling because it's fewer and far farther between these days. And I want to I mean, this this album was so outstanding. We haven't really heard much from her since she dropped it. And like, I don't think any of us are trying to folk less. We're trying to folk more. And thank God. Uh, what? Okay, what is this called? Folklore, the Long Pond Studio Sessions. My God, what a blessing. I, I'm, I guess I'm seeing this as my invite to a secret session in a cozy as hell cabin, which is honestly my best case scenario. Okay, we'll get started. I'll, I'll play some sound clips. I'll probably watch chunks and then report back to you. We'll see how this goes. Uh, so guys, we are in the Hudson Valley at Long Pond Studio. Uh, it is a studio next to, uh, you guessed it, Long Pond. Aren't you glad you, you're here for me to be dropping this knowledge? <laughs> I know it's Long Pond, and there's nothing else I could do, and I forget about you long enough to forget why I needed to. This whole vibe is very all too well. Um, you know, they're in the Hudson Valley. They're uh, you know, getting lost upstate, autumn leaves falling down like pieces into place. And I'd say I can picture it after all these days, but I just started playing, and I do think we're in Los Angeles right now, so I'm a little confused. So uh, first I'll do what I do best. Uh, I'll creep. Uh, home decor, <laughs> if I can. I loved in Miss Americana. Uh, obsessing over the details and trying to figure out the wine she was drinking with Abigail in Nashville, it was Camus. Yeah. Girlfriend's Tuesday is a $90 bottle. If I made that kind of money and worked that much, that's like one of life's luxuries that I would so love to have is a um, high price point on an everyday wine that I don't necessarily need to pump the air out of because I won't obsess over finishing every last drop. May my special occasion wines of today be my everyday wines of tomorrow. My God, we got to dream, people. Um, I love an Irish blessing, don't you? <laughs> my mom used to always write me Irish blessings. We I, we are Irish. And um, uh, with stuff that was like, may the worst of your – wait, may the best day today be your worst day tomorrow or something. And I always think in this way, like, ah, oh, yes, may my nicest belongings today be my basement furniture of tomorrow. Uh, may my legitimate serious gifts I actually want and use of today be my white elephant gag gifts of tomorrow. Sometimes I see threads of people being like, what's a fun white elephant gift? And people are like, oh my god, you're gonna die. A diptyque candle. And I'm like, um, <laughs> I, got, I got a diptyque candle in Paris. Don't mean to brag. Paris changes everything, to quote uh, Lisa Love from Teen Vogue. 
on the hills. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, uh, I still haven't burned it because each burn, I'm, I'm watching money burn in front of me. It's, I'm watching money vanish into thin air. Candle culture is too much for me to handle. And uh, I like to look at the candle as a status symbol. Don't, don't get it twisted. It's not large. It is indeed a tea light. And one of these days, if I do something or accomplish anything at all, I am going to burn it. I will burn it through in one night. And I almost want to be freed uh, from the shackles of this Baez candle that I bought in the height of Pinterest when I wanted to be cute and have a, put it on a mirrored tray on an acrylic coffee table. Some fresh flowers or like a fashion book that says like Tom Ford that I've definitely never read, but just like thought would look cool and make me seem high end uh, if I bought it on Amazon. And honestly, at one point I looked up like, can I just buy like fake boxes that look like high-end fashion books. I don't really want the weight and I honestly don't want to read them. I just want to like look interesting and cool. It really captures my essence. Like, no, really, by all means, judge my book by its cover because it is only a cover. There's no substance. <laughs> this is going to be a long night, you guys. Um, anyways, I'm excited to see this house in LA because this is her house that she petitioned to have uh, be named a historical landmark and she won and it is. And that way it's uh, she's renovating it and like working with historical uh, art architectural historians to uh, fully uh, adequately renovate the 1930s like Georgian revival style I think and um, it was owned by the Goldwins the people who founded MGM like it's a big piece of Hollywood history and I think she does want to preserve it preserve it sure uh, she's friends with Blake Lively after all the queen of preserve uh, but I also think she's not she's no dummy she's real estate investing queen and she knows what that'll do for the property value um, I, I, I really am here for Taylor Swift's real estate portfolio. I don't think we talk about it enough. Uh, oh, I'm excited to hear Last Great American Dynasty, speaking of. Anyway, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe I haven't been paying close attention, but that Vogue 73 Questions video was in that Franklin Canyon Cottage, one of her first places outside of Nashville. Um, and then in, I think, 2015, she bought the historical uh, Goldwyn House. And um, I still think about that. I think about that 73 questions video a lot. That was great. I, again, miss her, her doing press. That's when she was like, my boyfriend bought me an olive tree. I'm an international rod, uh, uh, international lightning rod for slut shaming. Uh, she said she, calories didn't count. She eat chicken tenders every day and me too. She stirs her coffee with like moon men flags. Uh, I, th that home tour was so fascinating, so good. I loved every minute of it. And uh, I feel familiar and at home there, but I just don't know this other house. There was that weird sign that was like, you've been buried in my mind, and I still don't really understand its origin. Um, oh, hold on, I have to write that down. I have a list of questions I would ask her if I saw her. I'm going to ask about the sign in the 73 questions video that said you've successfully buried yourself inside of my head. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, it was an, I feel like it was an Easter egg, and she stood in front of it for a reason while she talked about liking that woodsy candle what is it, by Rado. Um Anyway, sorry, guys, it's, <laughs> I, haven't even started. I just get excited when I talk about Taylor Swift. I have, I have so much to say. Yes, we, we open, we're in her Los Angeles home in, in May of 2020 recording an unforeseen album. Um, it appears she's built for the first time an in-home recording studio. I do believe this is a guest bedroom. And I'd recognize that, you know, blanket anywhere, that that gorgeous uh, herringbone, maybe chevroni quilted blue number that is stitched with literal fishing wire uh, that, you know, movers all over the country carelessly wrap your television in and surround with duct tape. That is indeed a, like, straight-up U-Haul moving blanket she's insulating her makeshift recording booth with, which 
begs the question, is that good for audio? And should I be doing that? Should I have, it's kind of, she lives in a giant house. The, I'm just kind of laughing that she's using like a moving blanket to <laughs> insulate her sound when it seems like she probably could have splurged for something else. But if that works, I am buying one ASAP. Early observations. I appreciate that her hair seems to be consistently tied in a uh, knot as opposed to using a scrunchier hair tie. I can never find a scrunchier hair tie. I have pitched a book where have all the hair ties gone. Now that I'm saying that, it's a little Paula Cole EPA where have all the cowboys gone, but um, I just find it funny. I, I don't know. I like I like small relatable things like that where it's like, yeah, I can't be bothered either uh, to, to fasten my hair. God, no, I'm just going to tie it in knots. Anyways, loving it all. Loving the guest bedrooms. The Gucci wallpaper. The crushed, what I think is crushed velvet mustard side chair that elegantly matches the portable on-demand storage moving blanket. Um, I want to see more of this house, but I don't think we're going to get to. Uh, so what I'm going to do is watch this in bursts and then kind of like uh, go back and recap. I don't know. We'll see. I'll, let me watch a few minutes and I'll BRB. Okay. So I made it in, I think, 19 minutes. I'm really proud of myself. I have so much to say. <laughs> Just trying to feverishly write notes. Okay, so I just want to clear. I, I just want to be completely clear here. Uh, whatever, di- whatever, di- whatever's happening here um, at Long Pond Studios. Long Pond is where I belong. Pond, the Twinkle Lights, the Bonfire, the Bon Iver. Just kidding. I know it's Bonnie Varen. Just kidding. I know his name's Justin, which still I'm having trouble with. Um, you guys, did did. Suddenly, suddenly, shiplap is being laughed by vertical um, wood paneling. I am so cozy, so at home. I'm so charmed. They're sitting around a bonfire. They're drinking wine. She is drinking white, which she, you know, I was happy to see today. And on Instagram, she transitioned to red. I just really believe, like, you get to the good stuff in life when you drink red wine. I think white wine, I can have a lot of fun, superficial, silly conversations. I'll get more emotional. I might open up a bit over some white. But red running through your veins is really where you get to the meat of the discussion. You pair red wine with meat of discussions and of cows. Um, and I think that uh, even myself included, people in the comment section of my live show were like, who are you? You're drinking white wine. And I not only was like moved that people understood me to where they would find that weird. I also do want to clarify when you're at high risk for purple teeth, it is really the only alternative. Um, I love this atmosphere. Aaron Dessner, I don't know a lot about the national or him to be honest, but his presence is more meek than I imagined. Um, I think that uh, this looks so much like you know, at KJP on Instagram, Keel James Patrick, um, our fellow, you know, fall-loving, foliage-leaf photoshopping uh, Irishman, I suppose. Is Keel? Is it Keel? Yeah, Keel James Patrick. Um, he posts cabins and stuff that look a lot like this all the time, and now I'm wondering um, if he, in fact, is Shamrock Holdings. Because <laughs> the similarities are, are unbelievable. Uh, I wrote down, I love the word listless. She loved, she mentioned how she felt listless and purposeless amidst lockdown. Isn't it funny to think that even people who are so rich, so accomplished and have done enough work to like sleeping beauty rest for eternity, um, would feel like purposeless and listless amidst lockdown. She says she didn't tell her label until a week before they put it out, which I think I already knew, but I still find wild. Um, that's the dream. You guys, you get to a place where 
you're no longer burdened by bureaucratic nonsense um, by having so much input going into everything you're doing to make sure it, it sells the utmost amount of records. You just are, your fan base is so loyal, consistent, inconsistent, and your quality is so trusted that you can like exist and create. And I just, I'm, I'm really happy for her. And it shows in the quality of this album. Like, it's just, it's a, when you are Taylor Swift's level and red tape becomes your red carpet, um, you really are given such freedom that's kind of insane when you think about a huge, huge label dropping a huge, huge album being alerted a week before with like out any marketing or like we just live in such a different world than the 1989 like uh, press machine. You know what I mean? I, just, I mean, I'm here for it. I don't want to live in a bureaucracy. I want to live in a teocracy. And that's what she's clearly created for herself. And I'm here for it. Um, she says that if uh, something very astute and guys, it is now, it's so late at night and I'm trying to do what I did the first time and just talk to you as I watch something so we can share it together because I know when I consume something, the first thing I want to do is like experience it with somebody. But we're, most of us are not with people right now and can't be with people. So I hope you'll allow me to slowly wander through this. <laughs> uh, but I love what she said is that um, if we're going to have to recalibrate everything, we should start with what we love the most first. I just believe this wholeheartedly. But she clarifies afterwards that that was kind of an unconscious thing that they were all doing. And um, I firmly believe in our more difficult moments, we go back to basics. I think whatever your creative equivalent is of like eating buttered noodles, you know what I mean, um, is what fills your soul during the downtimes. And I love that she kind of returned to that. And um, she then plays the one. And listening to the one, I, I, I mean, I, I like the one. It's a good song. I loved hearing her say live, I'm doing good, I'm on some new shit, and her explaining, uh, <laughs> like, that she's talking to a former lover on what her life is like now, and it kind of takes on a new meaning of, like, I could have assumed that, but I love to hear her confirm details, like, uh, I'm on some new shit. It's like, I'm the biggest effing pop star in the world around this town. I can do whatever I want. I can buy and have a be whatever I want. And I kind of love the relatability of the um, purposeful nonchalance a person manufactures uh, when reporting about how they're doing to somebody who they want to make pretty clear that they're doing quite well to. And while the best, you know, the best revenge is living well, the best revenge is not best expressed as a hard sell. We want to understate. We want to be bold yet unassuming obviously um and i enjoyed hearing the one and i think you guys know how uh much i adore the lyrics of well a couple things um we never painted by the numbers but we were making it count i mean really i mean it's like so so beautiful i also hearing roaring 20s tossing pennies in the pool um i've hit different life and it felt more like it felt less like I think it is a nod to Gatsby and this is why we can't have nice things. Um, but I think this time I focus more on like being in your 20s and like your hopes and dreams and wishes and what you envision your life to be like. And you have so like little practical experience, the, um, you know, probability and uh, reality of so many of these hopes and wishes 
is about as, you know, sound of an experiment in terms of, you know, willing your own good fortune toward you as tossing pennies in a pool. And then I kind of went to, wow, meet me behind the mall because you guys know one of the reasons I love a shopping mall is because it smells like loose change. I love a mall penny fountain. Um, and meet me, meet me behind the mall, I think, is one of like those quintessential simple Taylor Swift lyrics that just, to me, stands, stands the test of time. But we'll get there later. Um, Cardigan is also such a, like, a meta experience of a song for me. Like, I'll forget about Cardigan. Um, and I don't like listen to it that often. But then when I do, I'm like, damn, it's just like the old Cardigan. It's like, why? just when I felt like this was an old song in my head. Um, just when I felt like old Cardigan under someone's bed. Just when I felt like this was an old song again. Stuck in my head. She put it on and I realized that it's it's one of my favorites. It's a song that's like... I love a song that is somehow um, uh, candy-coated uh, while still capturing the grit of young love. It can be both. Its delivery has kind of the whimsy trappings uh, that only retrospect can provide you, yet somehow the melody and the lyrics and word things like the way she says, I knew you, it captures the very real longing and pain of the person who experienced this very real period of life and this very real period of emotion. And there's, um, a, Cardigan cuts through of uh, like a fourth wall for me in a sense where sometimes it's hard to figure out if she's telling a story or, or not. And I know technically this is part of the love triangle, but the way Cardigan is written in sounds, um, to me is able to both, provide the rosy retrospect of looking back on a relationship um, paired with a part of you that has the ability to like access the very real um, emotion and pain that came along with that situation that the, that still permeates your memories no matter how hard you try to dress a nightmare like a daydream uh, through a whimsy music video of a piano in an ocean. I'm not totally convinced this song is, I don't know. I, I don't know. It, uh, who cares? I, I need... It's, it's honestly, I found a lot of freedom in focusing less on like the uh, details of who songs are about and what they're nodding to and more so just appreciating them for what they are. But again, like that's word, the way she says, I knew you gets me. And I think it's just such an interesting thing to think about of like the I knew you when and how we've tried to erase people from our pasts, the past that like knew us very well and knew parts of us that are still very much alive and well. And it's interesting, this notion of not knowing somebody at all and time and distance passing, yet they might be one of the people in the world that actually does know you the best still. Um, but alas, just like the old cardigan, just like anything that once gave you great comfort that you kind of grew tired of and put away and almost forgot you had, the second you're uh, back in its warmth, it's like you never took it off. Um so she said she wanted to write a Rebecca Harkness song since 2013. Um, and Aaron says, it's about you, but it's not about you. And then she gives this really funny impression of a country song being like, this guy met this girl, and then this girl liked this guy, and then they fell in love, and then their kid was me. <laughs> and they, she talks about country music storytelling in a way that I just love so much because... Actually, I'm just going to play it. Hold on. Kind of um, narrative device yes. where in country music it's like this guy did this 
Then this woman did this. Yeah. Then they met, and their kid was me. Totally. Like, yeah. And like, I was that man yeah, that I've been talking about. I was that kid. <laughs> like, I, which is the best. It's I like you listen to. Country. Talking about twist endings in songs, it made me laugh. I love country music is hilarious in that way. Uh, it's like one side of the story, second side of the story, big end bridge chorus converges all characters. And it's, you know, you've seen me openly weep to Kenny Chesney's The Good Stuff. Need I remind you, this is a trigger point for me. But um, I don't know. I just kind of honestly want to start a petition to have Taylor Swift formally release This Guy Did This and This Woman Did This as a bonus track. My God, that was beautiful. Those are... I mean, ad-libbing, this, this, she has more talent in her passing thoughts than most do in their deepest epiphanies, you know? And, I mean, she nailed the twist ending. I haven't seen a twist ending like that since the Pina Colada song. Can you believe we've been together too long? He answers a, an ad in the paper from a woman who likes Pina Coladas, uh, only to find out when they go to O'Malley's to plan their escape, I believe, that the woman who put in the ad, and the ad he responded to by taking out another ad, about them mutually liking pina coladas and getting caught in the rain and making love at midnight uh, and having half a brain was in fact his current life partner. And they were both so sick of each other that they were mutually creeping and cheating behind each other's backs. That was a twist ending I never saw coming. I don't, I never knew if I should be charmed by that story because it's like, oh, there's always more to appreciate about what you already have. Even if you're tired of it, there's more to learn. I didn't know she liked pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, I don't know. It's a hypothetical, emotional, and physical affair for me. It's the, I respect my partner so little, I'm willing to put this in a very public newspaper column for me. <laughs> it's the, you know, oh, it's you for me. Like, she said, oh, it's you. <laughs> Sounds really anticlimactic to me. It's like, uh, we then we laughed for a moment and said, I never knew. It's like, you, what? Like, your, your reaction to both of you creeping behind each other's back is like, oh, I didn't know you liked pina coladas. It's like, here's the thing. Nobody, nobody loves, like, okay, pina coladas are delicious, but it's nobody's favorite drink. It's far too sugary. Uh, nobody hates them all the same because they're freaking delicious. This song is a pina colada and that, it's sweet upon first taste, but highly regrettable upon full consumption. And I can't stand idly by while well, people just openly cheat on their partners and we're supposed to take it as an anthem for feeling an, a renewed sense of uh, interest in our partners. Anyway, moving on. So well, she sings uh, the last great American dynasty, T.L. Gad. And um, she, I thought it was interesting um, that Jack talked about like the twist ending kind of. Hollow Pina Colada song. Um, <laughs> trying to give another example of a twist ending, but I can't right now. Uh, but you guys watched me listen to Last Great American Dynasty live, and I was like blown away by that twist ending. And Jack says like it's so it's um, like it's about you. Aaron says it's about you, but it's not. And then Jack says it's so deeply personal, it really hits you in the gut. And I was like, yeah, it the, when that line comes, it cha everything changes. And you really kind of want to revisit the whole thing. As I've said before, like, there are a lot of strong lyrics in this song, but I have a really hard time overlooking um, the, what, the the dog, the key lime green. I don't know, something about that line just, like, it, it it's, it weirds me out. Uh, it's the opposite of frizzin'. 
it's like when the hair stands up on your arms, you have goosebumps is one thing. Like what happens when like your body wants to tuck back in all its reactions? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, she said that country music storytelling gives her shivers. Frizzin, one might say. I should direct her to my highlight. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was fun to listen to her hear this, uh, sing the song. Um, I love the concept of the middle class divorce. I proving everybody wrong how do you like me now i love charming if a little gauche only so, so far uh new money goes parties were tasteful if a little loud honestly she had a marvelous time ruining everything is one of the best like it's just a lyric we don't think about enough we don't talk about enough that's like so important um and i think it can have so many metaphorical meanings and perspectives in terms of what you're ruining and what ruining really means and how one person's ruin is another person's breakthrough you know it's beautiful um and you know my taylor swift listening friend group that was on the podcast two weeks ago all too unwell we you know like every group of friends in america that likes taylor swift call ourselves the bitch pack <laughs> and uh made me think of fond memories of this summer when i was deeply miserable in quarantine and we started a friend bubble where we only hung out with each other under the premise of listening to Taylor Swift lyrics. And I've truly never been happier. Um, and also like, I don't know, blew through the money, the boys in the ballet. You told me that was an option for me in the year 2000 after seeing center stage. My God, send me up. I guess she's not necessarily saying the boys at the ballet, but I remember after seeing center stage thinking, mm, Cooper Nielsen's rat face. And I saw this coming. And not rat face in the good way, like ratatouille, the rat of all my dreams. If you're not up to date, TikTok on its own, ad hoc, individual by individual, amidst quarantine, the past couple months, has assembled like an entire ratatouille musical. And now Disney has entered the chat. Pixar has entered the chat. It's actually quite clever. Actors, singers, stagehands, costume designers, makeup artists, real actual pizza rats. I'm just kidding. I haven't heard from them. But like you, would, everyone that could collaborate did and it's like so cool and i'm obsessed with ratatouille the musical and i think it's honestly going to happen and they're going to hire these kids and it's going to be like a great gen z story that comes from something like tiktok that i honestly think is such an incredible hub for creativity but anyway i praise you oh ratatouille <laughs> i'm like i've been like racking my brain for the past couple weeks like how can i contribute to this I've no, I've no discernible talent to contribute to this whatsoever, unless they let me do the voiceover. But I've had one too many people tell me, actually many, many people tell me they listen to me while they fall asleep, which I never know. <laughs> I'm so long-winded and wordy; it's exhausting. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, oh my God! On topic: Cooper Nielsen, Ratface, Charlie from Center Stage, Mega Hottie. I think that's all I wanted to say. <laughs> I don't even remember. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I would have blown all through the money at the boys in the ballet if it was Charlie from Center Stage. He had the piercing facial structure we we love to see on the, on screen, but still the general approachability of uh, being in the movie because of his trade and not because of his uh, actor star rising. The, yeah, it gives him an approachability that makes me think he would not actively ignore me at dance camp, and honestly, that's hot. Um, anyway, okay, next song I'm going to watch a chunk another chunk and then i'll go back through it <laughs> but first 
you guys know I love Glossier. You love Glossier. Um, and actually, and typically talk about their makeup products. They make both makeup and skincare products. Well, makeup, skincare, body care. Um, they, they do many things, and they're very well known for popularizing the dewy, glowy skin look. But what I actually wanted to mention today was something I don't know if I've talked about before that I'm obsessed with, which is their fragrance. They're, um, they have this uh, fragrance called Glossier U, and it's an award-winning, addictive, uh, musky, uh, or I guess I should say musk-based, because I don't want you to think I'm saying musty, <laughs> uh, but it's a musk-based fragrance. It smells so, so glorious. It's called Glossier U because it, it kind of smells a little bit different on everyone, um, but it's very long-lasting and true to how it smells at the beginning, and it's just this it's a creamy, comforting, uh, clean, and, and, and warm fragrance. And the base notes sense like ambrette and ambrox and musk. And the top notes are iris, root, and pink pepper that kind of add a little extra something without overpowering the base notes. But those base notes are known for being long-lasting. It's kind of the ultimate personal fragrance. It's very hard to describe a smell. But when I tell you, I, 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 I love it. I have not been, you know, in the 90s we did a light body splashing. I've not been splashing so much as I've been doing full can openers um, into this fragrance and dousing myself in it. Uh, and what also has the scent, if you want to try it, is the um, hand cream that I don't know if I've talked to you guys about that I use all day every day. It's a nutrient-rich moisturizer for hands that's non-greasy. And I know this because I just got a new computer and I hate grease hands on new uh, keys. And it, it sinks in quickly with a sheer touch uh, finish. It doesn't leave fingerprints or residue behind and kind of dispenses just the right amount of product. And I love, love, love the hand cream. And if you want to try either the hand cream or Glossier U fragrance, you can get Glossier U and the hand cream by visiting glossier.com slash podcast slash be there in five. For a limited time, new customers can get 10% off their first order, and certain exclusions do apply. But you can go to Glossier.com, G-L-O-S-S-I-E-R.com, slash podcast, slash be there in five for 10% off your first order. The thing with the first order is that this is tough for me because these deals are too good, and I want them too, but these are not my first order. And I have another example right here because, holy crap, I am reading this copy, and um, I want in. This episode is sponsored by ButcherBox, and they have an incredible offer right now that I'm not just saying that I'm a devoted eater of their grass fed and grass finished steaks and butcher box since they obviously as you know believe everyone deserves high quality and humanely sourced meat um they have a special running through cyber monday and when you sign up now you get their steak sampler with six grass fed grass finished steaks for free when you sign up for a butcher box subscription I mean, the best steak night is free steak night. But beyond free steak, you're getting good steak because it's two New York strips and four top sirloins. I'm getting way too excited as I say this. <laughs> Gird your sirloins. Uh, but as you know, with ButcherBox, they'll ship a curated selection of high-quality meat right to your home. There are no added antibiotics or hormones. Each box is 9 to 11 pounds of meat, enough for 24 individual meals. And it's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum sealed so it stays that way. It's kind of, for us, has become a bit of like a no-brainer. It fed us through quarantine. We are stockpiling for winter. Uh, we love everything. I've, I've even gotten into pork chops lately, which says a lot, because you, you'd be hard-pressed to find me excited about a pork chop prior to this. But I uh, love their um, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, too, and their sugar and nitrate-free bacon. Like, it's the way meat should be. It's so, so wonderful. 
And with ButcherBox, you can get the highest quality meat for just around $6 per meal. They free ship. They ship for free nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. Sorry, Alaska and Hawaii. I always get left out. Uh, but for a limited time, new members uh, that subscribe to ButcherBox can get six free grass-fed, grass-finished steaks when they go to butcherbox.com slash be there in five. That's two New York strips and four top sirloins added to your first box for free. Like, I, I kind of I almost feel bad because, like, last time was a turkey. And I'm sure a lot of you got the turkey, but now I want the steaks. What do we do? It's all so good. If you haven't gotten ButcherBox, you might as well. There's no reason not to now. This is a deal. That's two New York strips and four top sirloins added to your first box for free. But act quickly because this offer is only good through Cyber Monday. That's six grass-fed, grass-finished steaks for free in your first box. Just go to butcherbox.com slash be there in five. That's butcherbox.com slash be there in five. So William Bowery is Joe, as we know. And Joe's, Joe plays piano beautifully, and he, he's always just playing and making things up and kind of creating things. And Exile was crazy because Joe had written that entire piano part, that dun 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 and it was singing the Bonnie Bear part, that I can see you standing, honey, with his arms around your yes. body, laughing, but the joke's not funny at all. And he I... Too? Yeah, he was just singing it Jesus. the way that the whole first, first verse is. Wow. And so... I was entranced and asked. Okay, wow, guys, I, I couldn't deliver that information to you. I needed you to hear it straight from T Swift because I actually do not know if I've ever heard her say the word Joe, like out of her own mouth. The, the as we've talked about so many times, uh, I, it's part of my utter confusion in between rep and lover was that I truly thought that Joe and Taylor's behavior was so suspicious that they could not be a legitimate couple. They, they would emerge only to promote his trailers. And when he was suspiciously in a, you know, all eight movies the year they started dating and like, they never like interacted or touched and they, they would have these like really deliberate PR plants, which, you know, a lot of legitimate couples leverage PR, sure. But, like, I just never believed this. But then when Lover came out and she kind of opened up a little bit more and was very clear that she was in love and in a happy relationship, I was like, I'm on board. I need clarification. Uh, what I – my imagination and my interpretations will run wild in the absence of information. But once I'm given it, I'll shut up. And so I was like, okay, cool. I might not really – fully understand this or be on board but like if you're in love and you're happy like I know that's what you've always wanted that's what I want for you um and then over the past year or two um it's become more clear even if not explicitly stated or we don't really see much of them that they're like it's actually quite the opposite of what I thought I thought their um like general evasiveness of media and paparazzi their strategic usage of it uh paired with their um, kind of complete privacy and absence that's such a departure from Taylor's past relationships. Think of like Calvin Harris and the like or walking with Harry Styles in Central Park with a fox sweater on a baby stroller. Um, but I, it's, I, yeah, you kind of realize at a point you're like, oh, it's because this one's like legit, like this one's real. Like she actually, this is, it's kind of a funny thing where I think a lot of us didn't know how to treat it because it didn't look like her other relationships did, or at least the ones we were aware of. Um, but I now think it's because she's actually serious about him and in love and happy. And the, I don't know. I, 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 the way she's talked about him in like articles and stuff I've seen 
I just don't know if I've ever heard her say his name or like talk about she talks about being in a relationship and you see them like hug in Miss Americana and obviously Miss Americana was a big turning point for me too and understanding like the support and when you know her feelings toward him um uh but yeah this was this this was exciting I love an admit admit admittance and openness about who she's with um and I'm happy if she's happy I think that Joe's one of those people that um he's like serious about his craft you know so he's like an actor and he's not really into the celebrity of it all and you know you know pop culture hounds like myself we're we're always sniffing for fresh blood but particularly of those are just dehydrated dying of thirst desperately needing promotion and something's both charming and infuriating about a person that has utterly no interest in self-promotion and that's kind of the joe alwyn special is like you're attractive and I like your accent and you're probably smart and endearing and interesting, but you're so deeply guarded with the press. It's a little off putting. Um, and I, I struggle when, um, people aren't great with press because I, it's like, I'm, I'm the biggest advocate for like, you know, give shy people a chance. Don't misjudge people for being like that are reserved for being disinterested. Like it's not totally fair. Not everybody needs to be fun, Bobby outgoing. Uh, but at the same time, when you're an actor and your celebrity and your presence really matters, I always hope people take the opportunity to like showcase elements of their charm to the press, even if they don't really want to be there or they don't love the questions. I just think it goes really far to show your adaptability to different situations. And if you're going to be this like celebrity that we pay money to go see places and b- make money off of who you are, then like I'd love to like who you are. But I think he's in a weird position where he's trying to start a career out and wants to talk about a bunch of things with his films, but I'm sure all the press wants to talk about is Taylor. And I'm sure that's frustrating in and of itself. But beyond that, I'm sure that they're, her camp's pretty strict about what he should and shouldn't say about her, right? And then they made a decision to be private, whatever. It's, anyways, I'm rambling. He's just not, you know, it's it's like, I, I love to hate a, a, a full-on thirst object that just, you know, is milking it for all it's worth. I can never decide how I feel. It's like if the situation were reversed, I'd probably respect the hell out of the way he's chosen to go about this. So don't listen to me. Um, also, I just said thirst object, <laughs> which is my new favorite term <laughs> because of uh, the election studs, you know, like uh, the mega hotties. I know I talk about them way too much and, you know, we've, we're past this now, but I still haven't forgotten about my time spent with the uh, chart throbs with the map daddies, you know? Uh, this is the quote I read at my live show. This is why I'm really into the term thirst object, and I think you should be too. What is this? Oh, see, I tried to write, I wrote a lot of parody songs about election megahati Steve Kornacki and his khakis, I, even though he is gay. Um, he actually wrote a very beautiful article uh, when he came out in Salon. Uh, you can find it on salon.com. I think it's from 2012, maybe. I just jotted down several of my ideas on this slide that never came to fruition, like, Two seven zero to hero. <laughs> oh my god, Erica Jane. How many votes do I need? How many votes do I need? Honestly, the audacity here of me adding two extra syllables into each line is um unforgivable. How many votes do I need? Tons, not none. Two seven zero 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 done. But I said two seven zero, two seven zero, two seven zero done. Nobody cares. Oh my god, I have so many problems. I get so sidetracked. Um, but what I wanted to tell you beyond um, you know, make a plug for my outstanding parody music, um, grab a clipboard and a mug, that's a map. Interesting, interesting. 
uh, sorry, I'm still I'm trying to get to the quote, but I'm just reading through these dumb ideas. Uh, H&R Block this way. No. Okay. No. <laughs> it's okay. Here it is. CNN's John King is another favorite, but more viewers seem to view him as a benevolent father type rather than an out-and-out -out thirst object. I was like, what? And I love that this is like a very, I forget what it was. It was like a legitimate website. And just the, the words out and out thirst object in a presented a frank manner was like everything I needed. But anyway, yeah, you guys, um, back to William Bowery. Why was I, why did I bring up Kornacki? I don't mean to do that. Oh, that typically in a celebrity, I'm looking for not only a thirst object, but a thirst subject, like somebody that is thirsty and like wants the fame and paparazzi and that I can kind of like indulge in my opinion because they're there for my opinion. But like something always feels weird and wrong when talking about Joe and Taylor, if like they're so uh, staunchly defending their privacy and their relationship has this much like depth and importance, like that's awesome. And I want that for her and she seems happy, but uh, I just wish I knew him a little bit better. But anyway, the um, scene opens when she's just she's talking about like uh, William Bowery, like we know who that is. Her and Jack are kind of like having their friend banter, obviously knowing who he is. And it's like Aaron Dessner knew this whole time, even though he told Vox or whatever that he didn't. Um, and also, now that I think about it, I'm like, well, duh, it's like got to be somebody you're quarantining with, right? Unless people just commonly have impromptu uh, piano FaceTime jam sessions. Uh, but there was a lot of uh, discussion around it being um, Harry Styles, which that would have been amazing. Um, around it being uh, Selena Gomez, actually. A I've heard Bruce Springsteen. Some people thought it could be Taylor herself. Let me just brief you, briefly walk you through the lore of William Bowery. Um, so the first person to talk about him was Aaron Dessner in rolling stone and aaron said that he uh whoever this uh let's call him bilbo uh <laughs> bilbo <laughs> um so william bowery actually wrote the original idea for exile taylor took it and ran with it um and that he didn't said he like didn't fully know him and he didn't confirm if it was an alias for anybody uh, because he said, I don't know. She didn't tell me there was a Cardigan video literally until it came out, and I wrote the song with her. So I don't know, but I'm pretty sure he's an actual songwriter. She enjoys little mysteries, which is misleading, because I don't think Joe's a songwriter, right? And then Aaron said, with in Vulture, not Fox, sorry. Um, William Bowery is who she wrote Exile with in Betty. He's a singer-songwriter. What? But he's not. Uh, that's why I ruled out Joe. Uh, he said we're... Uh, Taylor has been singing both the male and female parts. It's supposed to be a dialogue between two lovers. I interpreted that and built the song, played the piano, and built around that template. So when I heard that too, I was like, oh, well, she's singing male and female parts. Like, then, yeah, I, maybe she wasn't with somebody in person. And um, that person, or that person is not themselves a singer. That kind of, I remember, brought me a little bit back to Joe. But anyway, whatever. Um, and then when talking about Betty, Aaron Dessner said this one uh, Taylor and William wrote and then both Jack and I worked on it we all kind of passed it around uh, to have some sort of freewheeling Bob Dylan feel and have it connect back to Cardigan um, and then when asked if William Bowery is Joe Alwyn he says uh, we're close but she won't tell me that I think it's actually someone else and then brings up mysteries again and then when he was interviewed um, there was another interview for like radio or something and um, 
the interviewer said there's some fan debate over William Bowery's identity, and he said, I'm not familiar with him. And he said, I'm not either. I haven't actually met him because of social distancing, which is kind of funny. I think he's a friend. Aaron's good. I got to hand it to him. So then Taylor said about um, Exile, and thank you to the kind person on Reddit who compiled this because it's at, uh, the username Stormy Storm in the Dark. Um, this is from September, but what I was lo- I was looking back, I was like, what did we think? It's so hard to remember all of our intricate theories once we know their conclusion, you know? Uh, so I just wanted to walk you back through this. Um, Taylor uh, said on a radio interview, Exile is a song that was written about miscommunications and relationships. And in the case of this song, I imagine that the miscommunications ended the relationship. They led to sort of the demise of this love affair, and now these two people are seeing each other for the first time, and they keep miscommunicating with each other. They can't quite get on the same page. They never were able to, and even in their end, even after they've broken up, they're still not hearing each other. So we imagine the beginning would be his side of the story, the second verse her side of the story, and the end would be the story of them talking over each other and not hearing each other. We're really stoked about how it turned out because it really does seem to be about the tragedy of two people, two ships passing in the night. Yeah, absolutely. This song's brilliant. I mean, it's magic. James has lost the love of his life because basically, and doesn't understand how to get it back. I think we all have these situations in our lives where we learn to really, really give a heartfelt apology for the first time. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody really messes up sometimes. And the song that I wrote from the perspective of a 17-year-old, this is a song I wrote from the perspective of a 17-year-old boy. I've always loved that in music, you can kind of slip into different identities that you can sing from other people's perspectives. So that's what I did on this one. And I named all the characters in the story after my friend's kids. And I hope you like it. Oh, so she did confirm that. Interesting. I wonder if she likes kids and is good with kids. And and, and like, what her uh, godparent, you know, makeshift aunt vibes are. Like, I'm sure she bakes cookies and is delightful and has all the toys and accommodations and is just a ray of human sunshine that she is. But I can also see part of her being a little bit kind of like me in that she'll try to shake the hand of a toddler. Uh, I'd be interested to know. I can't say I would name something after my friend's kids, though. Maybe my own nephews and niece. And she also referred to William Bowery as one of her musical heroes. And she said, I wrote and recorded this music in isolation, but got to collaborate with some musical heroes of mine. Well, it's a little indirect. Aaron Dessner, um, Bonnie Vare, and William Bowery, who co-wrote two with me. And then um, a few fans got extra symbols and comments on their signed copies of Folklore with WB initials. And it had a smiley face uh, and a mustache on the page for Exile. So, you know, that would suggest that either it was Taylor herself or somebody she lived with, right? So there's, I guess, some sort of connection to the Bowery Hotel and their early relationship, um, which obviously is important uh, given the pseudonym. But I don't know what the significance of William is other than that. It's a pretty common name. Uh, But my guess would be like maybe he uses that name in hotels or something. Like, I don't know. Uh, Some people also thought it could be Ed Sheeran. uh, But somebody like an Ed Sheeran, I feel like. There was no re- there's like a re- I think what I struggle with here is like there was a reason to use a pseudonym uh, and I couldn't quite figure out what that thing was. Um, did I do you remember when like Lady Gaga had that like weird moment where she had a alter ego? Uh, was that, hold on, I'm looking it up. Joe Calderon. Oh, my God. Joe Calderon is truly an unsung hero of the 2010s. Uh, the fictional male alter ego to Lady Gaga. They did a men's fashion editorial for Autumn Winter, Vogue Japan, on 
the working title, Elegant Mechanics. Thank you, Google. That is way more than I needed or ever asked for and needed to share with people here. But uh, let's all remember Joe Calderon singing at, I believe, the VMAs, You and I, one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, man, I love I love an alter ego. That would have been a little bit fun if Taylor Swift's alter ego was William Bowery. Um, but it's also kind of a comically vanilla name for an alter ego. You know, I'd, I'd pick something a little spice, you know, like Kevin. <laughs> Did I tell you guys that I was going through like my baby box and my mom saved cards from people and my parents were surprised by the gender of all their kids. Uh, so the cards were like, congrats on either blank or blank. And the one of the cards I read said, congrats on either uh Katie or Kevin? And I was like, I was almost Kevin Kennedy. I mean, truly, my basic potential knows no bounds. I didn't stand a chance. Kevin Kennedy, one hundred percent, like works at Northwestern Mutual, is vaguely around the six foot mark. Um, hasn't, you know, still lives in a smaller market and has yet to find um, a slim fitting pant leg. Uh, still probably wears Sperry's and in the summer uh, rainbow leather flip-flops to Dave Matthews concerts where he doesn't consider himself like a Fairweather fan or a person that just loves the hits. No, he's there for the death like John Butler Trio. Um, Kevin Kennedy, my alter ego is not as cool as Joe Calderon or William Bowery, but hey, actually Kevin Kennedy probably looks a lot like Joe. <laughs> um, which is such a compliment to myself. Joe is actually quite attractive, and I just feel like I have a bit of a like a roadblock sometimes with blonde men, as bad as that sounds. I mean, you know me. I like those grizzly uh, male ballerinas. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I need like between between Kornacki and um, Charlie from Center Stage. Uh, I'm like acting like I have this refined taste in men, and meanwhile, like ugh. Joe Alwyn, it's like, God, have effortless brilliance much? Just play the piano with no agenda and infuriatingly make a hit song? It's like, it can't be mad. <laughs> he seems uh, like he makes her very happy. And it's pretty impressive that um, he was fiddling around on the piano and uh, just kind of wrote and sang, I guess, the first verse from the guy's point of view. And she's talked about how he has like a low register. And she was entranced, and I mean, I'm just, I'm fascinated. Um, I wonder if he it can sing and songwrite. It's really interesting. And it's nominated for a Grammy, you guys. That's crazy um, that they both would get one, I think, technically. I, I need more, like, maybe a little more scoop on the song's origin. Like, but I guess from what I've read from interviews, it's pretty clear what it's about. I guess it's just kind of, like, hypothetical. I kind of wonder if one person, like, substantially, like, wronged the other, if they have communication issues or if they're just kind of, uh, you know, songwriters of the ability to kind of role play in that way. Um, but she was cute talking about it, like, saying she was amazed by the song and then she was like, oh, this would be a good duet. But um, And I, I loved her. She kind of did the Gen Z Debbie Ryan hair tuck being, like, oh, I don't know who it would be a great duet duet with. And kind of says, um, I, I couldn't say it with words if I said it. And he said, no, it would hurt too much. Uh, I, I like when she says uh, things earnestly. And um, I don't know, There's, I wish I had a word for that. But like, she's either very like poetic and eloquent in her speech or very straightforward. And sometimes the straightforward things are delivered in a very funny way. Um, it would hurt too much. That kind of made me laugh. Um, all too relatable. All to Will Bowery. Um, so, you know, it's cool that Joe has this hidden talent. I mean, coming from a gal that has taken up both the keyboard and the recorder, sight for the eyes and the ears during quarantine. This nonchalance is tough for me to um, 
you know, digest because all I want is to be musical. All I want is to be able to play around the piano. I love music and musicals and lyrics and songwriting and I have all the drive, but not even a learner's permanent of talent. And I'm just kind of, fr- I get so jealous when people have a surplus of talent. <laughs> Um, but anyways, it was fun to watch Bonnie Vere sing, especially because I couldn't see his face. Uh, I desperately wanted to see what Justin Vernon's vibe was these days, but he was f- fully hiding behind like a ski turtle, um, like Jersey mask type thing. Um, but his voice sounded as good as ever. I love the Dylan-y way he sings, and he ca- especially when he says, so step right out and it's a little offbeat. The song is magic. It's it's um, it's almost a song that so, feels so deeply personal. Um, listening to it feels voyeuristic in a sense of indulging in somebody else's uh, misfortune and conflict. Um, and it's almost feels so personal and relatable that you're, you're, you yourself are trying to place it in your own life. You know what I mean? And what I really loved was watching Justin Vernon's um, hair, Bonnie Bear, uh, his hand gestures. Uh, toward the end, um, the way he was singing, it's like if you turn the audio off, you would think he was podcasting. You would think he was making a political argument. And I think it speaks to the power of the lyrics and the relatability and, and the sentiment they communicate in terms of you feeling like you're listening to a melodic version of a real conversation and falling out. And I could almost sense his um, uh, reluctant, um, defeated, yet in, impassioned delivery behind his mask through his gestures alone. They suggest that he was trying to get his point across um, and he was listing things out and making sure he was as clear as he could be while simultaneously having that uh, posture of, of defeat that's so quintessential to a relationship that you want to fight for, but you simultaneously know it's a lost cause. I mean, I love this song. I love the live version. This is my sister's favorite song. She's going to love this. Can't wait to talk to her about it. Um And I think it's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, I'm surprised he wrote it. I'd love to hear him, uh, Joe, sing it. Um, It's interesting to hear that, like, Exile and Betty was written by her and her significant other because those are two songs that are technically not really about, I don't know, those are, like, two of the folklore storytelling songs. Um, And, you know, to be fair, if she had put his name in the album, it would have eclipsed the press cycle. And unfortunately, which annoys me for her, and even though I'm probably going to find some quippy William uh, Bowery episode title myself, um, what should it be? All Too Will Bowery? No, I already did All Too Unwell. Mm, I mean, I guess like in this, the, our quest, our search for who the hell William Bowery was, we were doing a lot of good will hunting. So maybe I'll stick with that. <laughs> Um, but anyway, I think that uh, I'm annoyed even just glancing at Twitter. It's like the number one trending thing above all else. Like William Bowery is like the big takeaway narrative of this special so far. And even though I'm not anywhere close to where I should be in terms of how far in I am and how late it is, um, it's we're getting to hours where I'm transitioning from wine to coffee. Usually the wine moms that are like everything happens for a reason. Like, mm, I'm, I'm, I'm so tired. I was about to say Pinot Grigio. No, she didn't. But like nobody says that. And that's not a real thing. You know what I mean? Uh, typically, they're like, I like coffee until it's time to drink wine or something. I've never actually transitioned from wine to coffee outside of being at a wedding venue. When honestly, more so than needing coffee, I just need something to appear to be doing while I evacuate the dance floor. For you know, Pharrell's happy. Can't stop the feeling. <clears throat> Moves like Jagger. Celebrate. Um, 
We are family. Electric slide. YMCA. Cupid shuffle. Oh, I, they're, they, I'm very picky about wedding music. I, I just think that she knows what the media is going to take as bait, what will be misconstrued, what will become her folklore, what will dominate her news cycles, and she reacts accordingly. And I think this is the original reason why she, Neil Soberg was on This Is What You Came For, um, even though she later really like, did something bad and told people it was her when she, I guess she wasn't supposed to because I don't know if Calvin wanted – I don't know if they, maybe they broke they broke up by the time it was released. I don't know, whatever. Again, not important. But um, I love the idea of a pseudonym. I need to think of what mine would be outside of Kevin Kennedy. Kevin Kennedy, one hundo, sold Cutco knives door to door at one point. It's like <laughs> he's very uh, pink cheek, pink cheeked and boyish. But if technically he is me, you, I like to think uh, just like those Cutco knives, our uh, humor is needlessly sharp. Uh, and well, maybe he charmed people subtly. Who the hell knows? But uh, yeah, excited for Joe and William Bauer. The, the good William hunting is over. Uh, they seem serious and happy. I hope we see more of him, hear more of him. It was fun to even hear her talk about him. I would have loved if he was in this. Uh, again, I just want to know more, but that's okay. Yeah, that that um, hit different. That was like, they weren't even in the same place. That was, was so beautiful. That I, the, uh, the end part especially, or they're talking over each other, the kind of... Uh, Conoris interruption is really beautiful and interesting and I never really thought about it before that it was designed for them it was designed to be chaotic and for them to not be hearing each other now we move on to track five um the infamous track five of course Ugh, I'm already at an hour actually I'm not doing bad relative to the songs I think I want to cover because the uh, my favorites are it's a little front heavy, um, but now we, as we move into track five, uh, we have Ad- we have Adirondack chairs. I would like to mention that I was peeking outside of Justin Vernon's place uh, when he was singing, and he also had Adir- Adirondack chairs, and also was amongst the foliage. His had turned though, so I'm not sure when um, he sang or if they were at the same location at different times or what the deal was. But all I know is that apparently, if I want to be a good writer, I got to get myself a place amongst. The foliage in isolation and uh, get myself some, you know, super uncomfortable uh, outdoor chairs because we all know that Adirondack chairs, well, once you get in them, they're kind of comfortable. Objectively speaking, Adirondack chairs are the futon of uh, outdoor vacation furniture. You know what I mean? Uh, Your center of gravity is too low. The seat slants backward and you slide down. It's very hard to get up. There's no cup holders, uh, you know, the whole thing. It's uh, it's never my first choice to sit in an Adirondack chair, especially not in like a skirt or dress. Uh, but once I, you know, get myself nestled, I'm not, I'm not too mad. But they're really expensive. I don't know if you ever peep the price tags of Adirondack chairs. <laughs> but they're like, I find them, new, whatever. They're just a confusing piece of furniture. And I've been seeing a lot of this special. So, yes, we are outside we have a new scene. We have Adirondack chairs. We are um, uh, picking a track five. She's dressed like a full-on uh, anthropologist, if you will. No, I don't mean a social scientist, but a person that excessively and exclusively shops at anthropology. We are mixing the trifecta. We are mixing, you know, it's one thing to mix uh, textures and patterns. It's one thing to mix patterns and colors. 
And then it's one thing to mix colors and textures. But the, the you know, three-circle Venn diagram of mixing colors, textures, and patterns is what anthropology does best. At, the, at an approachable level, it's, and, and I say approachable, I almost exclusively beeline to the butler's pantry they call a sale room. It's, it's like, you know how the butler's pantry is like where you want, like with the catering kitchens, like where you want the mess to be made? So like the people at the real party who aren't the help can enjoy the aesthetic. I, I, feel, I, I feel like I'm the help at anthropology. Like I might as well be because I'm having to sift through the piles of clothes in the back uh, because they treat their, it's like their stuff's so expensive and pristine, but the second it's on sale, it's literally treated like garbage. I just feel like Oscar the Grouch sifting through garbage because I'm trying to, like him, pull off olive green. Because I swear to God, when one of those ladies came by my house in the 90s uh, and read my colors, I was in autumn. But when you look up in autumn, I am not in autumn. Uh, and my whole life, here, here I've been, uh, carelessly, leaning towards rust colors, warm undertones, browns. I don't know. I, I don't know, you guys. I, in my phase where I wanted to be a manic pixie dream girl, and I was really trying to subscribe to the, uh, you know, the lovable chaos of a Natalie Portman in a garden state, for example. I'd go in the back and get myself a mustard hoodie as if that's going to do anything for my life. I have a lot of, everything in the anthropology sale section is like a putrid green or a mustard. And that is a fact. And I would suggest if you are actually an autumn, you go there immediately because everything will look amazing on you. And I honestly, as much as I make fun of women reading your colors, and I think it's so weird to charge for it because you can figure it out pretty easily. Not only have I been, I think, wrong for majority of my life, I also um, think that could have saved me a lot of grief and just it made me avoid shopping at Anthropology altogether because their entire color palette is, is very like 1970s kitchen. It's like Anthropology to me is a very much the clothing representative of, of avocado-colored avocado cabinets with a, um, a statement wallpaper that you think looks retro but actually will date itself as being from a time when we were trying to look retro, which are different things. You know what I mean? Like new clothes trying to look vintage are f a funny thing that I'm not even going to get into. I could talk about anthropology all day. But the center of that Venn diagram is, yeah, it's anthropology at, you know, mid-level. Uh, smells like a volcano, Capri blue candle. Higher level, it's, it's ironically free people despite being within the confines of the landlocked Venn diagram center. Uh, and, you know, Santal 26 or whatever. I, Taylor Swift almost, she was so much free people. <laughs> Moving into uh, track five, I actually, maybe I'll play this for you. I was going to read you the quote, but I think it was, I don't know. I hope you can hear because I think this is a really important, meaningful uh, exchange in which Jack tells her she, like, this is one of the, I think maybe is the best song she's ever written. And she talks about the process of making it track five. And I find this song to be deeply important and be some of the strongest material I've heard of hers, uh, lyrically and melodically. And, um, yeah, I'm excited for to watch her facial expressions during this one. You know, it's a pretty emotional song. Anyway, listen. It's definitely, I think, one of the saddest songs on the album. Yeah. I think it's one of the best songs you've uh, written. Oh, thanks. Which is, I think, why you crowned it as a track five. Yeah, picking a track five is is sort of a pressurized decision, but I knew from day one this was probably going to be it. Um, it's kind of a song about karma. Yeah. It's a song about greed. It's a song about 
how somebody could be your best friend and your companion and your most trusted person in your life and then they could go and become your worst enemy it really is it's such an interesting um human exchange to study in terms of like the best friend turned enemy and the ability for somebody who understands the inner workings, <laughs> the infrastructure of something, to be able to dismantle it from the inside once they're on the outside. Nobody knows how to hurt you better than people that know you well. And when you set out and, you know, thinking of her and Scott Borchetta, who I assume this is about, you know, he discovers her at Bluebird, but he's a nobody too. She, like, takes his label and career to the next level, but similarly, you know, he gave her her break. And it's just one of those impossible situations where it's, uh, something is so is genuinely mutually beneficial that it's hard to really argue uh, for specific rights or, or leverage in a situation. But so, at the same time, you don't want it to be hung over your head that somebody gave you your start when your merit is what's responsible for what sustained you and gr grown you, right? Um, and I just think it's a really interesting concept, like when you set out into the world like arm in arm, um, only to end up at each other's throats. To, to be thick as thieves and like that shared goal of success and money that becomes a pawn and now you're the one being stolen from and poor thing this is before her um stuff was sold to shamrock holdings whoever the hell that is also can i just say like i, I can't get over how beautiful she looks without any glam with her hair like thrown up in a hat in like this mixture of colors and textures and patterns, it just like works. I'm very, I'm, I'm honestly amazed. Uh, it would be fun to be a very natural beauty. <laughs> it would be fun to not wake up and look at myself and like, you know, be merely going to a CVS, but feel like I need to draw on two liquid eyeliner wings so I can fly as far away from my face as possible because it's just, <laughs> it's not great in a natural state. Uh, so, I think that uh, the way she uh, sings this, now that I've listened to it, um, it's, <laughs> I've never, the way she says the word, rewatch the way she says, the, now you're the hero going around saving face. I've never even seen that, her facial expression. And while I was listening to the song, I was like trying to figure out, um, I was trying to figure out what was for dramatic effect and what was emotion? Because she looked unfamiliar to me the way she was singing this song. The lyrics are so strong. Like, I mean, if I'm dead to you, are you, are you at the wake? When I'd fight, you used to tell me I was brave. It's so crazy when the behavior that somebody once encouraged or your attributes that somebody really liked about you um, ultimately become such a source of contention uh, and when she says things like like the when she's saying i can go anywhere i want and uh just not home you would still miss me in your bones though like just not home in your but i was like oh whoa it's it, like the, whatever was happening here in studio i loved this version of it and the way she's saying i still talk to you and i'm screaming at the sky i was like oh wow um when we get into stolen lullabies i kind of I, f I felt her pain and when think about like I mean this it's just a different kind of pain it's not romantic it's not familial it's not like a missed lost opportunity something that slipped away from you it's like a close close cohort 
turned enemy, not only screwing you over, selling your life's work, heartlessly doing business deals, like completely fundamentally changes. I just, it's so hard to imagine. And um, yeah, it's like, there's gotta be something there that happened on both sides. Well, I guess we'll just never know. But um, she also kind of ad-libbed, I think at the end when she said, unless maybe I, I haven't listened to my tears ricochet in a while, but at the end, does she normally go, look at all my tears turning into your tears? And I was like, oh yeah, there's a definition of ricochet. Because when I was uh, listening to it, I was kind of like, I wish she would have clarified um, her like word choice or her like the song title choice. Like, are we talking um, the tears, the teardrops on the guitar? Or are these just <laughs> guitar? I've... <laughs> uh i don't know are they regular tears are they are are, are these uh the mascara tears cried in the bathroom life is just a classroom you know would love a clarification uh this song i don't i mean i don't have words i have a lot of words but like you guys know how i feel about this song it's just it's immaculate it's deep it's meaningful it's it's such an artful fu which is really all we can ask for in life it's kind of like this to me is a poet's diss track right she doesn't say, uh, I made you who you are. I got you where you are. She says, uh, I was pretty sure the look what you made me do video with this line, but um, she says, you know, you are the same jewels that I gave you as you bury me. Um, and I think that's the through line of this song, hence the word ricochet, hence the your tears, my tears. It's like they started out standing to mutually gain an inclusion with their mutual cooperation. They were able to be successful. But due to this imbalance, all this situation has created is when one person fires, the other person fires back. And it's kind of an endless loop of um, attempts to take the other down. If she's on fire, he'll be made of ash too. Um, you had to kill me but it killed you just the same you know it's 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 like the no matter what you do it's going to if, if no matter what you do to come after me to harm me to cut me down to cut me off to to kick me out it's going to come right back at you you know you think of diss tracks you think of what goes around comes around crimey river you know jt why am i only thinking of justin timberlake songs you think of uh, loray on tiktok the song is wild. It's like, let's start out with Bryce Hall. Yeah, he's got some smelly balls. I only know his name because Addison gave him fame. Now moving on to sister, I think I'm about to diss her. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> anyway. Now we're going to move on to Mirrorball. Oh, inter there's, interesting. There's an aerial shot of Long Lake. And, you know, much like Kevin Kennedy, not as cute in the daylight. Uh, the lake itself, I mean, I, it looked considerably less serene in the daytime. I'm not impressed. Um, anyway, so she just talked about how uh, this is uh, kind of the connection of this is me trying and Mirrorball, and how there's a connection between these two songs. And that when she wrote the line, I've never been a natural, all I do is try, 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 she worried it was almost too true and like ran it by Jack, which I think is really interesting. Um, and ironically, something that a uh, natural who is try, try, trying would do because um, that level of self-consciousness, there's this, there, there, uh, it results in whether you want it or not, a level of strategy towards your vulnerabilities, right? And um, 
you know, people always have called her calculated, and I know she hates that. But I guess my question has always been like, why is there a negative connotation with that word? What's wrong with being measured and careful? And I don't know if if people. I mean, it's the more negativity like I receive, it's like it's impossible to not move forward more measured and calculated because nobody wants that for their life. <laughs> they they want to like modify and fix things to you know, prevent themselves from getting hurt and to uh, modify behavior people don't like. And like, I get it. Um, but I think that she, it's just like so interesting to write like a, so many confessional albums and to have a song like this that's so self-aware, but to think that that line itself is a little too true because while it is, um, I'd argue it's not like a secret about her. You know what I mean? I feel like she's often chastised for trying too hard. Which I, you know, it's, it's, I, I struggle with try hard. It's like, do we really need to uh, be criticizing effort in this world where apathy is the greater problem? I don't know. Um, but uh, she says she, she talks about seeing a scene um, when she thinks of this song, like a lonely disco ball, twinkly lights, neon signs, um, stragglers on the dance floor, a sad, moonlit, lonely experience in a town you've, uh, you've never been to before, which I thought was an interesting detail. Um, in terms of kind of this sad, passing, fleeting nature of entertaining in a place where everybody sees you and knows who you are, but you know no one. And your role is virtually done once the dance floor clears. Um, I'm not going to lie. I, listening to her talk about Mirrorball, I feel like my and our analysis of it's very spot on. And um, to be fair, it's a pretty straightforward metaphor. Um, but she said a lot of the stuff that I, I completely thought she was trying to say in terms of it being a metaphor for celebrity of talking about how a mirrorball sits on a pedestal, you know, whether the lights are on it or not, constantly um, needing to be on, just hanging there to serve other people. And when the lights are on, it's glittering, it's beautiful, and it serves a super specific function of, of entertainment and perhaps most notably is a, co a collective of broken pieces. And sometimes when people love to shine the spotlight on the mirrorball the most uh, is to highlight where it's broken. It's, uh, it's efficacy is contingent upon it being broken mirror. And she talks about <clears throat> to kind of the element of um, being multifaceted, being a different version of yourself around different people, which I think is something we all totally do. And I think this song is like one of the strongest metaphors on the album. And it, I, I wish I, I don't know how to explain how, what this sounds like to me, but it's, it's, I think I described in the last podcast about folklore, it, it reminds me of like an empty prom dance floor and you're the last two dancing, but also like you maybe are dancing with a ghost who died in a car crash and is named Johnny and has come back to visit you. And, uh, you know, he returns back to a ghost at midnight or something. Is, is that the plot of Susie Q? I'm not sure. Um, and it's it's just like I don't know. There's this tone that's um, nostalgic and ominous to me, and it's kind of a it's not sad so much as it is um, like disheartened. Uh, or it, you know how there's a difference. It, it, there's a sentiment of despondence, if you will, that isn't like sad or angry so much as it's just a little bit. Um, hopeless in that the sentiment is the accepting of the unfortunate nature of the situation. You're not, the sad part isn't 
your reaction to this unfortunate situation. The sad part is you acknowledging the existence of and your inability to fix the reality that you're in. You know what I mean? Um, But yeah, we talked about um, on the folklore episode, like uh, how sad and vacant the thought the the thought of this object is it's very poetic it serves um a, a very specific purpose to entertain it is inherently broken and and hollow by design it becomes obsolete for time and external environmental evolutions beyond its control yet still has to stay up on a pedestal still has to stay in view even if people don't really want to be seeing it or if it's not in its optimal light um it, it's it's so interesting to, you know, to to be operational and functional to the people it serves. It has to both be uh, broken and performing and have this spotlight glaringly shine, shining on it. But um, even when it's emitting, you know, the, such beauty and art back to other people, uh, what they see reflected back at them is a, um, like a cacophony of refracted light whose multitude of directions is largely outside of the mirror ball's control because its primary shape and context don't allow for a simple, predictable, um, universally pal- palatable way to uh, reflect what it is, like itself, what it is. By design, it's just going to be received in all different directions. Um, it's a lost cause to even try to uh, appear whole and to try to appeal to everybody. And... Um, you know, it's entertaining and, and beautiful and, and broken, but it's kind of artfully mesmerizingly reassembled. And um, I think it's just like, it's a really interesting metaphor that's chaotic, uh, but also super consistent and reliable, but only when you want it around. And even the nature of comparing herself to an object is an interesting thing in and of itself in the way we commodify, um, you know, like you think about a mirror ball and how you commodify it as an object. Uh we, we we don't we don't put any thought into it it just is what it is and it's there to serve its purpose and we don't apply any regard for the multitude of facets it has the origin of its manufacturing it's breaking and reassembling we just say that's a mirror ball and i need it to do what it does and stay in its lane and i can talk about it how it moves or shines or uh refracts light because it's just an object and i need that object to do its job and i think that it's just kind of an interesting thing of terms of like how we treat celebrities but um, she also mentioned that everyone and every one of us has the ability to become a shapeshifter. And like, I just don't use the term shapeshifter enough. And it's very um, anamorphs, but it's also very like Illuminati, weird YouTube conspiracy theory videos I'll watch late at night where they will like show um, like uh, kind of blips in time lapse videos of people and like tell me they're shapeshifting into reptilians. I'm like, okay. Uh, I think if that were a real possibility that in the, you know, in the Twilight series when they were phasing from wolves to humans or vice versa, the, the CGI would have been stronger because that was not realistic. But if this is a real thing that can happen to humans, I'm sure they would be able to factor in the technology. Um, so they called up the circus, burned the disco down when they sent home the horses and the rodeo clowns. She wrote uh, Mirabelle after she found out her shows were canceled. Uh, and I really liked what she said. And I hadn't really thought about this, about the bridge is that, you know, She's still on the tightrope trying to keep you laughing at me, even, you know, though she's in isolation. Like, 
she's she could take time off. She could just sit there, but she's writing all this music and still trying and still has, you know, she has every excuse to sit back and not do anything. And she says, like, I don't know why I feel the need to do something. Um, but I guess that's the thing with the mirror ball is that it can sit and wait until somebody needs it or it can build its own disco, right? <laughs> uh, I, I kind of think, I just, I deeply relate to being like, why do I feel such urgency to be doing something? Like, this is theoretically a time I could take a free pass and take the time to relax. I don't mean I, you know what I mean? Like the collective I, thinking out loud here of um, kind of like some feelings and I think a lot of us had during quarantine, even though we were met, we were so limited in what we could do. I think for a lot of us, we felt, if anything, added pressure of like to make something of the time. Um, and beyond that, it's interesting how we like, I mean, I, every week fear my irrelevance every week. I'm like, Oh God, this, like not every episode's better than the last. Not everyone is, you know, something everybody wants. Um, it's hard to keep people interested in you. It's, it's stressful and you want to be natural and authentic, but then at a point when you're not doing things that are like viral and crazy and eye catching, you know, you notice things will stall, but it's like, it, you know, I, I'm a human, not a meme. Uh, so I can't, I, I don't always really feel like uh, creating that type of content. I just want to exist. And I don't know, I just, I felt a lot of what she was saying just in terms of um, feeling an incessant need to be entertaining on the tightrope. Tight and even when no, literally nobody's asking you to, you feel this need to still be uh, what people need you to be, even in the absence of their solicitation and even at the expense of your own peace and relaxation. It's interesting. Uh, Jack Antonoff seems great. I'd love to have a quirky convo with him about like 90s cartoons, you know? You know, we effed with someone Saturday morning. I, to me, he like looks like a kid for like on the show recess. Um, he wears a lot of members only jackets. And why is his button blurred out, do you think? Could not figure out what his button said. Moving on to seven, we now have pink twinkle lights. Uh, <laughs> at Long Lake. She talks about how she was thinking when she sees a kid <clears throat> throwing a tantrum in a grocery store. Like, at what point does that stop? When do you, like, unlearn that? When do you start to become, like, more civilized? Uh, and I'm kind of like, well, A, do you go to grocery stores? And B, do you think that child is melting down because their child, that child is seeing Queen Icon Legend, Taylor Swift in the flesh? I would throw a tantrum. <laughs> uh, I would, like, bite into an avocado just to have my lips full and get attention, you know? Hi, Taylor. I'm Kate. It's nice to meet you. If you wouldn't mind diverting your attention momentarily to stab this EpiPen into my thigh, I'm about to go into anaphylactic shock, but wanted to make sure to say hello and that I'm a huge fan and that I am curious uh, what that word art meant, who it was from or about during Vogue's 73 questions right before you walked out the door about somebody being buried in your head. And I've Googled every combination of those exact words to try to figure out if it is from any piece of art or in another language. And I'm pretty sure it's an original quote, in which case it doesn't make a ton of sense. And I just need more intel. I probably wouldn't be able to get that out before the EpiPen. I've never actually had to use one on myself. And I don't even knock on wood carry one anymore. Because fortunately, my allergies are pretty mild. Um, uh, let's see, what does she talk about? Oh, yeah. So it's really that the, this conversation isn't anything that I'll harp on. She just explains the logic behind Picture me in the trees bef uh, before I learned civility. I used to scream something. I, I forget the lyrics. I don't listen to this song a lot. I don't always need to go here. 
this is a type of like uh, sad. It's kind of a nice to have a friend thing that if I'm in the mood, maybe. But I feel the song makes me feel f- sad, and I don't. There's some sad songs that don't that make me feel the right kind of wrong. The end rhymes, uh, coyote ugly, but this one's not one of them for some reason. It's just not landing with me currently. Uh, even though it's a beautiful song. Uh, we then go to August. Uh, so we know, and she confirms, that the triangle is James and Betty and this person in August. The person in August was never named. She says she calls them Augusta or Augustine. I'm going uh, to call her Gussie because I there's someone in my family tree whose name was uh, Augusta. And she went by like Aunt Gussie. And I'm, and I'm like, that is the most fascinating, unfeminine name that I kind of don't hate. <laughs> so uh, Cardigan is from Betty's perspective, like 20, 30 years down the line. Taylor says she thinks Betty and James end up together. Um, and then August is about this girl that James had this summer with named Gussie. And she's not a bad girl, not no, nor hussy. Uh, she's a sensitive person that fell for him. And she was trying to seem cool. Like she didn't care because that's what girls have to do. I'm reading what Taylor said. Uh, but then he goes back to Betty. And there's uh, the type of villain in stories that uh, takes your man and is uh, what she's found to be a myth because everyone has feelings and wants to do, uh, wants to be seen and loved. And uh, it is an interesting point, kind of, especially coming from the angle of, you know, uh, we, we, we all are on high alert for man stealers, home wreckers. You know, but I think that we're very, uh, as a society, unfavorable toward the mistress. Not that I think we need to be mistress apologists, uh, but I think it is totally fair and human and important to acknowledge the reality of um, empathetically looking at a, that type of situation and th- really thinking about not what it looks like on the outside, but what the motivations from the inside are, because. Uh, you have to remember, not only people lied to and made to feel like they aren't doing anything wrong. It's kind of the opposite. I think sometimes the other woman, like they're made to feel there's like a nobility to incurring the risk to like save or rescue the other person from this relationship that they don't want to be in, you know, that they're actually just cowardly, not exiting because they want to have their cake and eat it too, to quote uh, Mary-Kate Nashley and Holiday in the Sun, <laughs> as if they made up that quote. Uh, but I think that yeah, it's it's an interesting point. And she said that she wrote a long time ago in like an iPhone note. She writes lyrics she wants to incorporate in that in, I don't know, 2012 or something. Uh, and I would love to see her iPhone notes because Blank Space, I think, was an amalgam of all her most like clever one linery, like da 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 da, almost housewife tagline y lyrics. Uh, and I, doubt, I have iPhone notes of like uh, uh, so many of random ideas and like one-liners that never make any sense because I never take the time to write down their context so I'll just like open my iPhone looking for like my grocery list but then I'll see one iPhone note entitled um Vera Bradley Cooper and that is it no 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 text in the body just just that headline and I it's as what I assume is a killer Halloween costume where I dress as Bradley Cooper from A Star is Born uh, while also dressed in head to toe, oppressive pink and green paisley. Uh, but <laughs> I guess that's it, but maybe next year. Um, anyway, so she sings August. August, I really, um, I really like August's chorus. 
and bridge. And I loved watching her sing this acoustic and this song like belongs in this kind of pared down setting. And it, I think it would be a good contender for a single. I think like I'm less drawn to the storyline of August, but I do think what she's saying is valid. Um, so also it was made me laugh when Jack got so excited to like play the guitar just a little harder when the beat dropped in the last chorus, but like we couldn't audibly hear it harder. It's just <laughs> the body language is great. Um, so when we get to this is me trying, she talks about addicts and how they fight, um, like the concept of fighting for something every day that you don't get a pat on the back for the kind of invisible struggle, how uh, someone's best case scenario is, is uh, very often most people in the room's worst and how it feels when somebody doesn't know how hard you're trying because it doesn't meet their standards for what trying hard looks like. But sometimes our standards and requirements of what um, uh, uh, our standards and requirements that we hold others to are void of any like recalibration of what someone else's version of the the best or their best is, right? Everyone's operating from a different starting point some days when it comes to mental health. And I think this is what she's talking about. And um, she talks about how this song, she examines like a person who's driven to a cliff. Then this is like overlook and thinking like I could do whatever I want in this moment and it could affect everything forever. But then they turn around and go home and how that could be seen as not trying. But the fact that the best they could do is turn around and go home is a form of trying. And then the second verse is about somebody who feels like they have a lot of potential. And um, this is like my whole uh, spiel I talked about because uh, I, I strongly agree with this in terms of uh, I attribute, I don't know, it's, it's a, I hate the word success because it's like not a static state and it's so subjective. But like whenever I'm interviewed and people are like, what do you think is the key to, you know, doing unique things or having a few things work or whatever? Uh, honestly, it's, I think a lot of people with so much potential are perfectionists and perfectionists can't be entrepreneurs like you, you can't if you need perfection you there's very little you're going to be able to do on your own I mean that in like an entrepreneurial sense if you want to go out on your own work for yourself have a creative job and career um a uh, perfection doesn't exist in the absence of a customer's opinion whoever your end user is uh and b anything creative is inherently subjective and perfection doesn't exist. So you're signing up for a career to essentially drive yourself crazy, trying to achieve a moving uh, target. And I think that uh, I've like, I don't know, I because I really don't think I'm anything special. Uh, and I sat down and thought, what, like, what, why have I done these things? And why do people think they're interesting? And why is it different? And it's honestly because I just, I'm fine with bees. I'm a bee student, always have been. My parents were okay with bees. They were rewarded effort and not excellence. They really made it a point to make sure to honor the ways in which I was smart that the school system didn't always recognize. I was always writing and reading and you know, doing poems and uh, drawing and all these things. And, I, and I, never, I never, even though like I feel like the third party grading system didn't always highlight the ways in which I could contribute, um, I feel like through like the arts, I really kind of found myself. And um, that's why the arts I think are so important. And just even uh, being able to lose yourself in a, in a medium and be okay with um, experiment for experimenting for experimenting sake, you know? And I think it's just really hard for a lot of perfectionists to go out on their own and, and do things when they um, 
cannot handle when everything is executed flawlessly, when the, the entire point of an iterative minimum viable product, like entrepreneurial process is to uh, test and learn, to iterate, to, to be in a feedback loop where you're in a constant state of improvement. But if you need something to be done right the first time and are too uh, proud or that's the wrong word, but like you're too fixated on needing to do something right to the point where you even needing to need improvement is too daunting. Like it's a really challenging place to be. And I think a lot of people face this. And I even though I like I I could in some senses, like I'm extremely neurotic and insane about uh everything I do and needing it to be of a certain quality and whatever. But I just, yeah, I have a built-in margin for error. I'm okay with it. I think that that's kind of what Taylor's speaking to. And like when you are a person that gets so much um, of your self-worth from like a third-party metric, like grades, when you go out into the world and don't have that anymore, you don't really have a way to measure your own success. Whereas I feel like I never really put much stock in grades and I never really got my self-worth from them. I did well enough, um, but that was not a source of really anything for me. So I felt quite free in the absence of grades. Um, So it's interesting how people are a bit different in that sense. Uh, But I actually really, I'm not a huge fan of this. Like I'm indifferent to the song, This Is Me Trying. Uh, But I think I need to maybe spend more time with it because I really liked her speaking through... um, how people get out of school and have less chances to get gold stars and um, uh, talking about this from the perspective of an addict or a perspective of a person every second is trying not to drink. And it's just an interesting angle that I think is helpful as humans to, to carry with us in that uh, it's, it's not, it, 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 this is me trying, like I'm trying, I'm trying. Can see be really, you could see it as like a whiny and or incorrigible disposition um, and but it's not that. It's that trying is a metric that's difficult to quantify. And the horsepower you're putting behind your effort is highly contingent upon your life circumstances. And it's not about, hey, look at how much I'm trying, but just the declaration of the act of trying itself. The lack of quantification of how hard the person's trying uh, is a really beautiful way to reiterate that when someone's struggling, not driving off the cliff is trying. Every sip they don't take is trying. To try is not to succeed, but to break inertia. And um, that song from that angle of uh, this is the best I can do and I'm not asking or needing you to compare it to what is your best or the objective best (laughs) in this circumstance, um, I just think brings it's just a whole new layer of depth and empathy and human experience to uh, the song. I really, really like it. Sorry, guys, I'm so slow. And I know this is this is this is the risk I take in trying to do this overnight and staying up and just rambling because I know I'm not going to have time to edit and then I'm going to be mad at myself for being long-winded. <sighs> but I hope you uh, can forego quality at times in favor of speed. By speed, I mean a podcast longer than the special itself. Anyway, guys, so we're going to move on to illicit affairs now. You know, talking about illicit affairs isn't the only thing getting saucy in this podcast because I have a new advertiser given them I want to provide you discount codes for the holidays. I want to try a wide variety of products that I've heard people love. And one of these that's fairly new to me, but that is delicious nonetheless, and very on brand with the type of food category I like to subscribe to, is none other than Truff Hot Sauce. 
you guys, you know, the the ad copy's like, hey, mention if you you like sauces. I'm like, do I like sauces? Did I do a deep dive about aiolis in March to ease everybody's quarantine fears? I my favorite food group is condiments, and truff hot sauce is no exception. It's legitimately a luxury hot sauce, which is uh, maybe what I would call myself if I was a racehorse, um, <laughs> that makes every meal five stars. It's crafted with a signature blend of red chili, black truffle, or uh, organic agave nectar and savory spices. The product is amazing and it tastes wonderful. And I'll eat it with scrambled eggs or hot wings or chicken tenders or whatever I can you know, manage to put in my air fryer. Uh, they feel much more refined eating it with delicious truffle hot sauce. But beyond that, like this is one of the reasons I wanted to um, work with Truff is because they their packaging is in unbelievable. And I know that sounds bizarre for a hot sauce, but truly, uh, this is a great holiday gift, and you can get a variety pack of three that will have its uh, flagship hot sauce, the hotter hot sauce, and premium white truffle hot sauce. You can also get them individualized for an elevated stocking stuffer. There's um, limited uh, special edition white truff and VIP white and gold gift boxing that's like perfect for a holiday gift. And it's just, you know, people, everybody loves hot sauce, but it just so rarely does it come in like an elegant matte black and gold foil like gift box. I truly, my, I, my jaw was on the floor, but you don't have to listen to me. It was, it's been featured on the Today Show, Good Morning America, Rachel Ray, Food Network, Food and Wine. There's an up and coming star named Oprah that did feature it on her favorite things two years in a row. Um, and people love Truff, and it's clear why now that I'm a, a newfound convert. And I think you guys should see for yourself why it's the number one best selling sauce on Amazon and in Whole Foods nationwide. So if you want to see for yourself why Truff is the biggest hot sauce on Instagram and TikTok, get 10% off site wide when you use promo code be there in five at truff.com. That's 10% off everything, including the White Truff VIP box and Truff Variety Pack, just in time for the holidays. Just shop at truff.com, T-U-R-F-F, F as in fantastic, dot com, and use promo code Be There in 5 I just love a turnkey gift, you guys, honestly. It's, it's the gold foil packaging on a, on a hot sauce. It's, it's stunning. It's stunning. I was amazed. Um, okay, lastly, you guys, thank you for your patience as you support my livelihood in this podcast and my, you know, stay up and do this in what is now five in the morning. I, I take this job seriously and I want to be able to, uh, the part of being independent is being flexible and being able to do things quickly and respond quickly without any red tape. And um, when Taylor Swift drops things last minute, I, I want to be able to talk about them with people and I want to provide that for you. So anyways, all that to say, the reason, like I'll pull an all last minute all nighter or I'll prioritize doing stuff like this because um, this is my job and the way I get paid is through these ads. And some could say that, uh, me reviewing Taylor Swift content is one of my favorite rituals. I'm not going to lie. I didn't know it was in a multivitamin, but then ritual is out here being like, oh, FYI, there's GMOs, synthetic fillers, sugars, artificial colorants, animal byproducts like sheep's wool and gelatin from hooves and hides in my multivitamins. And I was like, excuse me. And I started using the product and it's a clean vegan friendly formula with key nutrients that, um, you know, it comes in forms your body can actually use. There's no weird extras. And it's, you know, a product that was made <clears throat> by a skeptic for skeptic. And I'm grateful because it supplements a lot of the nutrients I don't think I'm getting in my chicken tender hot sauce diet, such as vitamin D3, for example. I think one of the big competitive advantages differentiator, differentiators of Ritual is um, not only their commitment to transparency in their ingredients, but also their beautiful packaging and bottle and their clear capsules. 
um, but also they're delayed release capsules and they dissolve later in less sensitive areas of your stomach so you can take them with or without food which is huge for me in the morning and they leave behind this like minty fresh I don't even know how to explain it they're, they they like make your breath and, and, and mouth refreshed with this like mint aftertaste I don't even know how they do it it's quite incredible but Ritual now has expanded with um, different life stages in mind, and they, uh, they they've scientifically developed these products to help support different life stages, and they now have uh, multivitamins available for women, for men, for teens, uh, including their best-selling prenatal vitamin. And uh, Ritual is just here to make your uh, healthy habits easy. They're delivered to your door every month with free shipping always. You can start, snooze, or cancel your subscription anytime. And if you don't love Ritual within your first month, they'll refund your first order. I and Ritual both believe that you deserve to know what's in your multivitamin. Uh, we shouldn't be dissecting its contents with a layer of assumed mystery like we do at Taylor Swift Elf, and we should know exactly what we're getting when it comes to our health and wellness. And that's why Ritual's offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months if you will visit ritual.com slash be there in five to start your ritual today. Again, that's Ritual offering my listeners 10% off during our, your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash be there in five to start your ritual today. Okay, so I just watched the list of affairs. Not going to lie. Um, I didn't get much from that explanation. I was hoping for something <clears throat> sadly juicier. But also in doing that, I, her explanation made me feel kind of bad for wanting that. So she starts by saying this was the first album where she didn't feel like she had to be autobiographical. And this is also something I very much sensed from her and feel like we were all accurate about. Um, and we've talked about on the podcast before that she used to feel like the fans needed to hear a strip from the headlines account of her life. And it ended up, you know, even, even though it's a good marketing tool um, to, you know, open up about your life via lyrics, if for her, it was incredibly confining because there's so much more to writing songs than what you're uh, feeling in your storyline is what she said. That, and what I wrote down that she said, but yeah. <clears throat> and I think too, that um, songwriting like there's a there art is rooted in reality but there's so many liberties you take with um with words just for the sake of rhyming or cadence with and your word choice is so dependent on like what you're trying to convey and how you want to come across and you're so likely to tweak so many different things about a song because your goal isn't necessarily to make it align as closely as possible to truth as you can. Your goal is to make it a good song and to make the lyrics good and to uh, convey a message. And the broader message does isn't going to adhere to your reality. Like, nor does it. It's not, it's not required of anybody who's making art. Uh, and she always has been transparent about her lyrics being confessional, and that's why we hold on to them and analyze them. But I even have to remind myself, like, when you watch her making the video stuff or making the song stuff from Reputation, especially you kind of see in real time how lyrics happen. And it's not like the sitting down, deliberate writing of poetry where you're hung on every word. It's a lot of trying to, like, work things out and find the right thing to plop in this specific place that you can't really find the right word or thing for. And so you might completely alter the plot in favor of this thing that sounds really good. You know what I mean? Um, so she said that, uh, she, like this album made her feel like free in that sense. And, uh, it's kind of made me sad because she was talking about how, well, she was watching like movies every day and it wasn't, she wasn't really in her own life. She was kind of experiencing other people's lives and talking to other people. And, um, that's what made her write about this affair. 
but what made me sad is that she said it's uh, what she likes about this album is that it's allowed to exist on its own merit without feeling like something that people are just listening to to get something they could read in a headline and like that felt like a uh, dbatc death by a thousand cuts to a t swift fan because i hope she knows how many people do the opposite of that and if anything um are a fan despite the fodder if anything tolerate uh the dating rhetoric uh, they they don't welcome it i mean obviously i'm a, the biggest perpetuator of trying to find clues and figure out personal info and like i've over the years loved sharing like i i, I really enjoy like reading all sorts of different theories and interpretations across the board whether it's talking about the media angle of her and calvin harris's relationship or how evasive her and Joe are, her and Tom Edelson, Kaler theories. I'm the biggest perpetuator of all these things because I love the analysis. I love the treasure hunt. Uh, but beyond that, at a point, I feel comfortable taking the bait because as she's even saying here, she's giving us bait. She she write, she before was writing these songs, knowing full well <laughs> the analysis that would go into them and often pandering to them with her paparazzi activity. Um, she sat in boardrooms and tried to orchestrate how to market her albums. Makes sense. Uh, you, a lot of being a public figure is the, being in the business of, uh, you know, kind of attracting and maintaining people's attention. And unfortunately, uh, or for, for the person in that position, and fortunately for the consumer like me who lives for relationship gossip, um, so often it does center around people's love lives. And, uh, I think that, you know, all happily, uh, you know, stew and any and all information she'll provide us when it's for her promotion. And she's admitted to leveraging um, this interest in her love life for promotion. And it's fun and all that. But I do think that like, as a as a true, like, you know, in, in my bones, to quote my tears ricochet, uh, Taylor Swift fan, nothing drives a Taylor Swift super fan crazier than having um her work superficially uh, reduced to her irrelevant decade-old passing boyfriends, you know? So I guess it was kind of interesting to hear her say out loud, out loud, like, at a point this served me, and I thought this is what my fans wanted, but now I feel, f like, freedom in that this can exist on its own merit without needing to, like, hook people. And it kind of, I was just like, I don't want you to think that's the only reason we're here. Uh, you know, am I being a hypocrite because my interest in illicit affairs is kind of tempered by it not really, it's like, if, like I said before, it's one thing if I just have no idea what a song is about and like my imagination will run wild, but sometimes when it's confirmed that it's not something, I get less excited about it. Uh, so I'm part of the problem. My stomach just growled really loudly. <laughs> I have not slept. It's, we're, guys, we're now at, um. We are now in the seven o'clock range uh, because it's taking me so long to watch it. <laughs> Whatever. Um, so TLDR, Illicit Affairs isn't about her, sadly, but I liked hearing this acoustic and live and for the storytelling of the song. Um, and yeah, I just like how it captures the, um, what I'd say is like the uh, the process of an, of intoxication. The, the, knowing the inevitability of what happens, the you know, it starts out great. And the more you imbibe, you're just slowly poisoning yourself. But somehow you think the better thing to do is to keep going. And you become dependent on the source of your own uh, demise. And it's a confusing thing. And 
uh, illicit affairs uh, don't call me kid don't call me baby i mean i love the song it's really intense and my patreon i actually think i talked about illicit affairs for a long period of time i like the uh alternating notes and um the vocabulary word choice and i think it really um brings to life uh that sort of secretness and longing and despair um and self-sabotage in like um a, a sexy way all the same time you know what i mean um and i think i just really love the what started in beautiful rooms and up in some parking lots i'm not great with my lyrics right now <laughs> I need to be a little more alert uh so we're now back in a velvet shirt dress with an elastic sleeve it's lovely rust color i'm going to guess it's free people let me look uh, I've confirmed it is free people. There's one on Poshmark for $198. We stand an approachable price point. So uh, before Invisible String, she talks about going down rabbit holes, thinking about fate, you know, as one does, and that Aaron wrote music that she wanted uh, lyrics to attach to it. And, I mean, she very much nailed the lyrics to this song. I don't listen to the song a lot. Uh, this is where the album kind of tapers off for me, as you'll remember for from my Patreon, until we get to peace. Um to me, Invisible String feels like an audible format of a precious moment statue. It is sweet, and it is innocent, and it is uncomplicated. It's the type of sentiment that runs through the patrons of a fine retailer like a Hallmark store, perhaps a Lifeway Christian store. It, it, it's a very sweet, everything-happens-for-a-reason concept in the biggest, not bombshell, but she talks about the inspiration from this song being like after sending her ex like a baby gift. And it is true how... I mean, you think back on the Taylor Swift, Joe Jonas saga forever and always, like the Ellen, you know, thing, the, the Ellen thing was the moment that launched a thousand ships. And by that, I mean, like uh, the abbreviation for a relationship, like a bunch of shippers. And I feel like this is when all the shippers became obsessed with who Taylor Swift was dating because she brought us into this uh, amazingly, charmingly, uh, like spiteful and vengeful attitude of a scorned, teenager that I was here for then here for now and Joe Jonas was at the peak of his fame and caught in the crossfire and uh I so I assuming like last kiss forever and always like these songs are about him that are so intense and I assume this is one of her first major major heartbreaks um it is so fascinating to think you know of yourself in that moment and ever imagining yourself on the other side being able to sit there not only being okay with the person that just broke your heart being with somebody else being genuinely happy for them right um and since we never picture that being a reality when we're in the thick of the difficult thing it's important to reflect on that when we're in the um, moment where we're contemplating things like fate and how we're all tied together and um i love that she uh brought up the joe i was not expecting to hear about during this song <laughs> um I checked 12, I'm now realizing that, you know, similar to Kevin Kennedy, Long Lake Studios is a red, runny, ruddy undertone, uh, that I don't hold against it, but, you know, Kev's been too tied up with his Cutco knives and has used the blades to sever his invisible string, which should have been leading him to a better skincare routine. I don't know why I'm comparing Long Lake to Kevin Kennedy, my alter ego, but I just am I'm starting to slowly notice things about it that I... <laughs> once uh, romanticized. It's still a beautiful cabin, but it's just more, perhaps more uh, rustic than I initially thought. I also thought maybe uh, Aaron lived there, but it's just he slash the national own that studio, 
which it makes sense that studios would be wilderness vibes. I love that. Um, so now we're at Mad Woman. So she talks about how uh, when someone does something to you and they offend you, but then your response becomes the offense. Uh, rather, like it's, it's no longer about the thing they did. They're, it's essentially you know gaslighting, right? Like making you feel crazy by how you're responding instead of addressing the matter at hand. Um, and she's talking about how there's someone in her life and it's interesting because I'm like, are you talking about a scooter type person? But she, the way she positioned it, scooter's not in her life. You know what I mean? It, I felt, feel like she kind of positioned it more so somebody more in her circle that she has a communication disconnect with. But this song is so incredibly harsh and to me obviously has to be about scooter. I just feel like unless I missed something in the way she set it up, it wasn't overly pointed to him at all. And maybe she's being careful because of the, you know, women on the side lyrics. But um uh she talked about how the madness you feel having being made to feel like you have no right to respond or that you're crazy or angry or out of line by responding to somebody who offended you first and she was trying to figure out a, a way to say like why does this feel so bad and I, that i thought that was an interesting way to frame it too of like not needing to get off her chest <clears throat> all these thoughts, but rather the instinct to examine, like, why is, why is this so frustrating? Because it's, it's, it's um, hard to capture. You're mad about the original thing, but then you're more mad about being denied the right to respond and be mad. And, and it becomes almost not about what it's about. And then it, it, frustratingly, you're the one that's even taking away from the integrity of your own point and argument. You were trying to prove in the first place by having to respond and pander to the person's gaslighting. It's, it's, I don't know. It, it, uh, no one likes a mad woman. Uh, no one, like, people are so, so, so uh, ridiculously, unfairly uh, sexist in the way that women aren't allowed to get worked up and angry and that it's off-putting if, if we uh, react more than we respond. And there's just, we're on the hook to be doing and behaving in the right way um, constantly. But what happens when somebody does something to you that doesn't warrant your uh, composure? <laughs> and uh, I just think the expectation that's put on us sometimes to always be on our best behavior and that it's unbecoming and immature. To It's just like, you know how many men explode and blow up and yell all the time like it's nothing? It's just, it is, it's an interesting thing. Um, but anyways... Uh, I feel like of all the songs that I wasn't obsessed with live is maybe this one. I feel like I need that it felt this version of Mad Woman. It, Mad Woman in and of itself is controlled and held back, I think, by design. It's kind of, I think, uh, um, um, it's almost taking back the narrative in the sense of it kind of is uh, pandering to what people theoretically want women to do right is to like not react and to like calm down and to chill blah 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 but there's something very spooky about a person who is um very much manufacturing their calm state and you know they're seething underneath it and there's something very uh uh threatening about a relentless uh, commitment to pleasantry in the presence of immense tension and anger that makes the person all the more threatening and i almost feel like the tone in which this song is delivered is more calm and restrained in an effort to be more threatening N almost playing back the game of knowing that 
strong reaction or something more bombastic perhaps would be exactly uh, the thing that she's kind of being gaslit for. And it's very confusing. It's because we want to be allowed the latitude to react how we want and not um, have to respond in a way that's palatable to people when we're trying to address this issue. There's also something empowering about being like, oh, you want me to be calm? I'll be calm, but you won't know what's coming. You know what I mean? Uh, anyway, sorry. I have such issues rambling. I'm going to skip Epiphany. <laughs> I skipped it in the initial one. I'll skip it now. She wanted a string song. She wanted to tell a sports story. Um, when she heard the music for Epiphany, uh, I a thousand percent thought, and I got excited for a minute about the song. I thought she said she'd just seen Save the Last Dance, and I thought, wow, well, you're behind. Uh, and also, were you honestly inspired by Julia Stiles' choreography? Because it is elementary. Um, <laughs> But I do love Ice Cube, put your back into it, which I think was on the soundtrack. But honestly, I'm deeply moved by any dance movie from that era, be it uh, Coyote Ugly, Center Stage, Save the Last Dance. All I put some, uh, some step up. It was a little later, but I remember thinking like, wow, when I heard the violins mash up with P.D. Pablo's Show Me the Money, I was like, is this a New York Philharmonic? Like, wow. Two worlds definitely can collide and get along and produce an incredible musical number at the end that is both traditional with an edge, tradition with a twist. Every dance movie just ends with like, well, we're going to honor the way you do it, but we're also going to do it my way. And then the person who like uh, modernizes the thing that was a little stiff before gets all the glory and praise. Very Hallmark saves the town, you know? Last year, my big Hallmark plotline was Immaculate Deception, the you know, as I talked about in All Too Unwell, about the person who fakes a pregnancy when she goes to her hometown only to get pregnant by the tree hand uh, when she's about to announce that she wasn't actually pregnant but just wanted people to stop bothering her. I am, am interested in sampling something called Mary Did You Woe. It's a TikTok story about a young woman named Mary who starts to dance in small 15-second increments to top 40 music and even though the woe just appears to be a simple dance move where you throw something up and pretend to catch it, it's a lot more complicated than that. And kind of obsessed with the idea of like blending pop culture uh, in, in more real time. Like I feel like the Hallmark movies, it's about a girl who runs a dating app and you know her phone's like a, not even a Blackbird, it's like a Palm Pilot. I'm like, what is this? Is this really supposed to be 2020? I wish that there were more modern incorporations of culture into these movies. I think it's they're interesting uh, plot material. Uh, but in the context of TikTok, there's so many funny uh, reasons you need another person to film you or help you or like to do a transition video or to do one of like the two people trends or whatever. And if this, you know, Mary was trying to become a star, uh, trying to learn the woe and, you know, she wanted to do a dance to that song, but... Her, her face is like, whoa, you know, when people um, like will step into shoes or like transition outfits or something. Anyway, I can't give it away. It's not all fleshed out. You know, it's like Mary, did you whoa and like talking around the Christmas tree? It's like there's a lot I need to do in this uh, TikTok Hallmark crossover space that I need to pitch. I will spare you for now because I just complained about how I was rambling and then proceeded to <laughs> go into a Hallmark plotline nobody asked for. As I said 10 minutes ago, uh, she wanted to tell a sports story. And I did think she said uh, she had just seen Save the Last Dance, but she had just seen The Last Dance, the movie about the Chicago Bulls. Uh, it's actually very sweet. She talks about how her grandpa never really shared what he endured during his time at Guadalcanal and how she was thinking um, about the reality of something happening to you that's so bad, so dire, so traumatic that you can't even speak about it. 
it's like for in many cases, it's, I guess that's trauma, right? Like there's degrees. And in many cases, the way you process and get through things is, is through sharing. But some things are deep and dark and are are held tight are things that you were so horrible for you to experience. You don't even want to bestow upon people to vicariously experience, especially for an era that at least my impression of is them as being a little more therapy, mental health averse. I can't even imagine how you get through and process trauma of, of that to that degree. Um, and she talked about how it made her think about all of the people uh, experiencing that sort of uh, difficulty and despair in their and trauma in their work in high volumes at that time and right now still with COVID. And um, uh, yeah, wrote the song accordingly. It's a pretty song and I listened to it, but I just, I don't know. It's a, uh, There's always one song on a Taylor Swift album that just takes me to a place I don't really need to go. Uh, but the great news is we're uh, Betty. And Betty is a fascinating thing to me because she said, uh, she in the other room, she just heard Joe singing the fully formed chorus of Betty. Like, what? Like, uh, can you guys imagine being talented? It's just so crazy. Uh, I just feel like Greg is not encouraging of my parody song career in the way I wish he was. <laughs> I write plenty, but he never really seems to hear me from the other room and think, that's it, that's a hit, let's work on it together. But I also imagine collaborating on songwriting is a, because she's a literal songwriting prodigy and like expert. I'm sure it's very tricky to, to, uh, work with your partner in something when you're an expert and they're a novice and even just m- managing the creative process without stifling the other person's uh, ideas. I don't know. I just think it's, an, it's, I wonder what that was really like. And I'm like, did he, was he really just out of nowhere singing a chorus? Like how often do you just, it's one thing to, I feel like I sing about food or like the task I'm doing in the other room, you know, like not doing casual, you know, elite songwriting. I'm in the fridge singing about a sandwich probably, you know <laughs> Like fridge, I I showed up, got Havarti. Would you hand me? Would you crust me? <laughs> I hate myself so much. Would you tell me to go sub myself? Would you? Mm. <laughs> uh, uh, would you hand me? Would you hand me? Would you sub me? Would you tell me to go crisp myself? Like breadsticks at Olive Garden. Okay, I still hate myself, and that didn't get better. Uh, God, I, I regret not being able to edit this. <laughs> uh, okay, so I it's interesting hearing that she said that uh, she's always written from the female's perspective of wanting a male's apology, but she's never actually had a male's apology from a male perspective. And she said it's a teenage boy's perspective after he loses the love of his life uh, because he's been foolish. And there's this weird exchange with Jack where he's like, uh, allegedly he's been foolish and she's like no he's been foolish and he's like allegedly so they say i don't know so they say on the internet and he's just she's like no he's been foolish he's a fool we wrote it i'm confirming and then jack is like well allegedly according to the internet well i don't know who william bowery is so uh, it's like i just thought that was a weird thing to include it was a weird exchange and it was almost suggesting that this song is to a degree personal or about william bowery because he's associating what it's about so closely to William Bowery's identity and the joke that he doesn't know him. But why would it matter if he know, does or doesn't know him if they just wrote like a hypothetical fictional song? You know what I mean? I feel like there was something weird there that I can't quite put my finger on that was a little suspicious. And she alludes to like a heartbreak or, you know, a reopening of scars or whatever and um, uh, a couple times. And I think I just, I don't know, I'm, I'm curious if 
there was like a major point of turmoil or major issue they had at one point, which he's still a little scarred from. Can't really tell. Let me let me know what you think. Uh, as you all know, the, my biggest this isn't. I like Betty. It's definitely a top five, but. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't vibe with this song as much as like August, for example, if we're going to go the upbeat round route. I kind of wonder, I'm like, what, at what point did she incorporate Blake, Blake Lively's kids' names? Part of me was like, what is the original words uh, baby instead of Betty? Um, baby, yeah, you know what I mean? It just seems easy. Uh, and then maybe Betty was like an easy fit and then the rest went from there. Um, but the actually more likely thing is uh, trying to find something that rhyme with she says and using Inez, which is very chain smokers school of rhyming for me. But, uh, you know, what are you going to do? If she wants to rhyme proper nouns, it's her prerogative. So, yeah, I guess it was edu- educational in a sense to learn about Joe's role and Betty that he magically started singing out of uh, singing it out of thin air in the other room, which I find odd and fascinating. I'm fascinated by the uh, concept of a brand new songwriter writing with a significant other who also happens to be elite have an elite skill toward it and how that was um i assume assuming they isolated and quarantined together in la i guess i'm not totally sure but uh yeah there's something that's missing there for me with the the point of betty and i think i'm just so not in as invested in the love triangle uh even though i did like you know the justice for august moment we had or gussie rather anyway moving on to my uh, one of my personal favorite all-time Taylor Swift songs that I will listen to very selectively that I um, it's hard to call it a favorite when it's like kind of intense and, and slow uh, but when I really think about it this is this and my tears ricochet on, on this album specifically are like two of the strongest showings uh, she's ever had lyrically and piece blows my mind and is just so autobiographical for the way I feel about myself, almost to the point where I, it feels like wrong to listen to. I almost am like, it's it's, it's kind of like her comment about uh, being forthcoming about all I do is try, try, try and feeling like, uh, is this too true? I feel like I don't even want to play piece for my husband. <laughs> but the thing is, he's probably not looking into it. Uh, in this way, but this is, I guess, how I see it. Um, it's just, she starts out by beginning with like, I like that the melody sounds peaceful and the song is called Peace, but it's actually about the absence of peace. It's about the unrest. And I was like, yeah. And um, she took really, I don't know, it's a really, I enjoyed this part of vulnerability, uh, especially between her and Aaron, because Aaron kind of opened up finally. And she's talking through the, how deeply personal this song is for her, which I guess this one was specifically about her and not folklore of somebody else. But um, uh, she talks about like the elephant in her room, in the room at all times in terms of being close to her and all that it comes with. And that if you're in her life, you might be followed or your phone could be tapped or, um, you know, you could have something violated. You could always be around crowds. You might not get enough of her time. There's a million reasons why being friends with somebody at that level of celebrity or lovers or family with somebody at that level is inherently complicated that uh, your average person might not have the stamina for. And just the exhaustion of constantly qualifying that to people is is one thing. But um, beyond that, just 
uh, being a person who desperately wants to provide peace for her partner, but the ways in which she cannot are simply not within her control. And so her version of peace is different than mine in a sense. Um, I guess I'd probably identify a little bit more with Aaron, uh, but it, what he said in terms of like, you know, when your mental health is up and down, when you get down easily, when, you know, things, when you kind of feel blue and it's beyond your control, it's a similar feeling of like, all I want for myself is peace, much less those around me and I care about. I don't want this to, uh, you know, permeate into our relationship. I don't want this to affect you. I want to be stable and I want to be able to provide, you know, meet all of your needs. But it, it is hard to do that sometimes when you're not always able to meet your own. And um, I just I just love the lyrics like, uh, give you my while, give you a child. I was watching her closely while she was saying that. Not because it's all that, you know, matters, uh, but because I definitely, there's certain themes and words and stuff like I'll kind of choke up on my sing and talk about it. And I'm, even though, you know, women are so much more and I don't want to pry, I definitely am interested just in not like, do you want to have any kids? Do you want to have kids? Like just centering it on that, but rather like, what does that look like for a celebrity? Because I can see either being like thinking it was pretty a lot easier, more straightforward than your average person, just because you could always afford and have help and still do whatever you needed to do, get all the trainers, all the chefs, all of the fears I have about the ways in which my uh, health, well-being, body, uh, job, life will be affected, largely could be corrected by cash. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, it, it would be so incredibly daunting to be raising something like vulnerable that you want to be able to give that peace that due to your circumstances, you can't as evidence in this song. It's very interesting. Um, but I just, you know, spoken word, uh, need, I, we just need to go revisit this because it's just unbelievable. Um, I, I, the, even the line, but I'm a fire and I'll keep your brittle heart warm moves me to tears. If your cascade ocean wave blues come, all these people think love's for show, but I would die for you in secret. The devil's in the details, but you got a friend in me. Would it be enough if I could never give you peace? And what's so interesting is I was so hung up on, my, my mind is so blown, but like the concept of um, uh, that a fire is, is, is a problem, but it's also a solution. I guess it really all the elements, fire, water, air, I mean, everything is like, it serves an essential purpose that also in excess or in the wrong context or mixed with the wrong thing is catastrophe, is, is catastrophic. And um, uh, focusing, you know, if you're a fire with all the issues that could come with that, uh, focusing on the positive byproduct of being able to keep somebody warm, I think is really beautiful. And uh, all these people think love's for show, but I would die for you in secret is just so so it, it, it's got it packs that punch of if i'm dead to you why are you at the wake of like wow 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 you nailed that like i don't even i don't even understand the assembly of those uh lyrics they're just they they convey something so complicated with such simple words and metaphor it's just unbelievable um the devil's in the details, but you've got a friend of me. Like, are you kidding? I know I, this is like probably the third time I've podcasted about this, but um, I say all that because I'm, I've been so, I'm so distracted by so much of the brilliance in this song. Your integrity makes me seem small. You paint dreamscapes on the wall. I talk shit with my friends. It's like I'm wasting your honor. 
And, you know, I'd swing with you for the fences, sit with you in the trenches, give you my wild, give you a child, give you the silence that only comes when two people understand each other. Uh, family that I chose now that I see your brother as my brother, is it enough? So that's what I was kind of trying to get to is um, what I didn't notice, which is weird, is that in each of these like stanzas toward the end, it says, would it be enough if I could never be, if I could never give you peace? She, she in a couple of verses says, would it be enough if I can never give you peace? And then also says it, um, after saying, you know, I sing, sing with you for the fences, sit with you in the trenches, give you my wild, give you a child, et cetera. Is it enough? And if you listen to my podcast and and or listen to the two-hour Patreon I did last night, God, God bless you if you have listened to me talk for this long today, um, about like my experience dating my husband and the disconnects we had at the beginning and um, my, you know, frustration with how much people focused on us living together, not being engaged, how long we dated before we were engaged. And then by the time I actually wanted to be engaged, it was really annoying. And I cried in a lot of bar bathrooms because people were like asking me when it was going to happen. But like a hell of I knew. Um, <laughs> and anyway, I talk, I, I talk about a bunch of stuff, but one thing I talk about at the end is like, um, by and large, the most like meaningful thing to me in my relationship is like as a person who uh, is very perpetually uh, dissatisfied and who in my dating history was just always, uh, whether by my own doing through insecurity and experience or a little by the doing of the way I was treated uh, by people I casually dated because nobody seriously dated me. Um, I just, I was riddled with uh, feelings of inadequacy and operating from such a deficit that made me a needy version of myself that I, like I said, I don't, um, I don't actually identify with like as a human characteristic. And I didn't realize till I was older and I was in a healthy relationship that that the neediness and wasn't a static uh, personality trait so much as it was a response to something uh, that wasn't being fulfilled. Right. And um, that, uh, you know, being able to be, uh, to not fake an ounce of my being, to be around, to, you know, have to be a version of myself, um, you know, like a mirror ball, uh, to change things about yourself, to fit in, to please others, to be, um, you know, I think to a degree we go through our lives so often feeling like we have to be posing. Um, and you, you don't want to pose at home. You don't want to have to be on your best behavior. You don't want to fake an ounce of your being. And something I just so deeply appreciate about my husband is um, I'm just so wholeheartedly myself around him in a way that I genuinely don't feel that comfortable around many people. And um, it's been a beautiful thing to come home at the end of the day and to feel like I'm enough. And even though I can never give him peace, I am I very much m uh, mull over this concept of enough and uh, satisfaction because of the Hamilton of it all. Eliza saying, if you come home at the end of the day, that would be enough. And Hamilton's writes like he's running out of time and he'll never be satisfied. And somebody who's never satisfied simply cannot uh, ever perceive something as enough. And uh, for her to so wholeheartedly embrace him and to reassure him, that, uh, you know, just being his wife is enough, right? Like she doesn't need anything out of him. I think that because uh, I have one, I think there's something, this song like honors in a weird way, like uh, partners who are patient and, and accepting and who don't uh, lean on you or put too much pressure on you to for you to be giving them peace and stability um, when you know, people who feel a little bit more chaotic or struggle with mental health or struggle with dissatisfaction or whatever it is. Like, I, I, I am a more chaotic person and um, I definitely 
if not as breezy as I'd like to be. And I think that it's not always easy to be married to people that are up and down or are incredibly um, critical of themselves. And uh, I don't know, I, I guess, like, I think that my personality type, however chaotic it is, um, has a place in the world and allows me to produce in ways that I, I wouldn't trade it. But at the same time, it doesn't not always make me an easy partner. And I'm just very appreciative uh, that, you know, even though most days I'm utterly unimpressed and feeling horrible about myself for some reason or the other, for a thing I signed up for, by the way, um, it's a really beautiful and important uh, thing to be made to feel enough, uh, even on the days where you yourself are very much convinced that you are not enough. And for a partner to be so patient and kind and um, not love you because it's easy but like love you despite it not being easy because it's worth it and um you bring something to the table right and I think that like um creative and complicated and people that deal with you know mental health issues people that um you know have different personality and communication styles that are a little more uh chaotic and involved than others like we're not all um easy breezy partners even though and I think sometimes we over harp on our inability to give somebody peace because it's the thing we're seeking and we're almost projecting onto our partners that that's what they want too when really they probably picked us because that's not what they need from us right who would pick me if they were trying to get peace unless you wanted to inherit my huge ass peace sign you know twinkle lit wreath from west elm that i got in 2013 because it dominated pinterest and yes i do keep it up on my wall year round um other than that, I, I got nothing. Maybe an old Peace Frogs t-shirt. I freaking love Peace Frogs. Uh, but I just, I don't know. I talk about that more on the Patreon. But I just, I love this song. Can't reiterate it enough. Um, I'm sure a lot of you understand as well that there's a real release in the whole, I'm a mess, but I guess I'm the mess that you wanted. <laughs> Five to quote TS once again. Uh, moving on to hoax. She mentions that she likes the word hoax. She's like, this is another word I like. I was like, and I wonder, did I miss her saying she likes another word earlier? I like a lot of words she uses um, from mercurial to gauche to exile to hoax. And having two songs that are single words with X's in them was a power move on this album. The explanation of hoax was a little confusing. It's already a confusing song. And now knowing it's about multiple people and scenarios and they kind of didn't really close the loop on why they chose the word hoax which is kind of the thing I've been interested in this whole time is figuring out this like kind of meaning behind that as I've uh, kind of uh, mused I, I I thought honestly this was like a maybe a broader metaphor for fame and that the ultimate hoax is is the parasocial relationship between a star and their fans and there's this sense of like faux closeness and they're the reality of the relationship is one that they both genuinely believe in, but it's a hoax. Um, but apparently it's not about that at all. Uh, I very much missed the mark on this song, and it's about, uh, well, let me just play it for you. Because I love that it has an X, and I love the way that it looks, and I love the way it sounds. I think with this song being the last song on the album, it kind of embodied all the things that this album was thematically, like confessions, um, incorporating nature, emotional volatility and ambiguity at the same time, sort of love that isn't just easy. And it's the most kind of symbolic, poetic thing, listing all these things that this person is to you. And I remembered I asked you for advice on this one. You did. I think you didn't. I think, like, to you it meant different things, and that was 
a moment of like doubt or something. And I said, I think I said, what if not all of these feelings are about the same person? What if the, I'm writing about several different, very fractured situations, like, you know, one is about love and one is about a business thing that, that, that really hurt. And one is about a sort of relationship that I consider to be family, but that really hurt. And yeah, and I, well, because I think that's what makes it a song. That this really is the th- line that I think is interesting. Line about, um, you know, it still hurts underneath my scars from when they pulled me apart. Like anyone in my Which life knows what that, start. what I'm singing about there, but it, it, everybody has but that do we situation know? in their life where it's like, you let someone in and they get to know you and they know exactly what buttons to push to hurt you the most. Yeah. That, that's that thing where the scar healed over, but it's still painful. They still have phantom pain. Yeah. I think the part that sounds like love to me is don't want no other shade of blue, but you no other sadness in the world would do. Yeah. It sounds like to me, that sounds like what love really is. Who would you be sad with and who would you deal with when they were sad? And Spoken like a true member of the Lonely Hearts Club, which I am owner proprietor. That's that's almost comically uh, melancholic to be like the ultimate representation of love is like, want to spend our sad days together? Yeah, it's like beautiful and poetic, but it's also kind of a funny, very uh, melancholic angle that, you know, I identify with deeply. Uh, Very confused by this, if I'm I'm honest. And I'll play what she said for the lakes too, because the, these two songs confused me when I reviewed them the first time. They confuse me now. I marinated, like I let hoax marinate for weeks, and finally I was like, "Oh God, this is a, totally about fame." And I thought I, I had this like epiphany, and it's completely wrong. Uh, and the lakes, I mean, with the lakes, I think it's kind of clear that, um, like that, she said when she's twenty, she had this. Since she's twenty, she's had this like escape plan. <laughs> She really shouldn't make a. If, I I I volunteer to develop an intricate Taylor Swift escape room, where you ultimately get to escape to the lakes where the poets went to die, but to get out of the escape room, you have to complete a series of impossible tasks, Easter eggs, uh, numerology problems, maybe a cryptex, uh, various things from the Taylor Swift canon and fandom that only the most elite would be able to know and. Uh, that's how you figure out who gets to go to a secret session. You just basically bring as many people as possible outside the area and see who escapes. <laughs> they deserve to go. I'm just kidding. Um, I would love to build a Taylor Swift escape room, though. That would be really interesting. I made a very elaborate scavenger hunt for my husband for our anniversary. It's on my Instagram highlights if you want to see it. It's homemade. Very fun thing to do during quarantine. Anyway, uh, so she's had this escape plan. Uh, where she escaped to a, a cottage, you know, since she was 20 years old. But I'd argue, you know, it's what we call the Rose Hill Cottage plan of uh, uh, mid to older millennials who have seen Nancy Myers, the holiday, and you know, pun having one of those uh, breathe in your stove fumes moments like I did in the holiday, uh, decided that we ourselves needed to be one with nature. Thoreau walled and ponded up, and by that we just want to surround ourselves with, you know. Cozy vibes, shabby chic interiors, wood-burning fireplaces, uh, and, you know, commit to a rustic lifestyle that after a few days we would most certainly hate. But the idea of it seems so charming and uncomplicated, and it's really the the cottage core of it all, the folklore of it all. It's the idea of something we get lost in. I think we all have a cottage plan. And uh, I support Taylor's wholeheartedly if that's what she wants. But when she was describing the lakes, well, okay, sorry, this is the last one I'll do, and I'll just play some of it for you, then I'll wrap up. Um, because Hoax as the ending song for the record, I thought, 
was interesting for a couple weeks, but then I wanted to actually come in with the real last song of the record, mm. which is this song that, The Lakes, which shows you exactly what, it kind of is the overarching theme of the whole album, of trying to escape, having something you want to protect, trying to protect your own sanity, and saying, look, they did this hundreds of years ago. Yeah, So... Like, was that confusing to you guys? Her saying, like, hoax would work for a couple weeks, but then this is the last missing piece of the puzzle. And I was like, I'm I'm like, I'm really not following. And I'm also really tired. But I really, hoax is, they never explain the premise of hoax or the use of that word beyond that she liked it. Um, And that, or like the, what hoax was kind of trying to get at. And then... So it's not like I felt clear on the ending as is, but for her to be like, that worked for a couple weeks, but then I wanted this to be fill in the missing puzzle piece. Um, I like The Lakes. It's not something I listen to often. It's, it's kind of a road trippy vibe song. Um, and I love the wordplay at like Wordsworth and whatnot. And did, did you see her seething face when she was singing the word Wordsworth? Wild. Um, she's, she's, she's a, a, again, master at the artful disc. But I think that... Like, I get the escape plan, and I get wanting to escape from it all, and I get that uh, the the importance and meaningfulness of having somebody to escape with. You know, would you run away with me? Yes, babies fly like a jet stream. But <clears throat> that information is not particularly new. But beyond that, it's like, I don't know. If, if, if the puzzle piece that she's putting together that's, like, in contrast to hoax, I guess, is that um, – you know, the the deeper meaning they were talking about that I actually quite like, which is uh, everybody wants to escape and we're in a really unique position where we cannot. And we might all have our backup plan or our cottage or our thing we look to as the our out uh, that we almost the idea of is, is, a, is a crutch for us to maybe not have to, to face uh, the real way to emotionally escape issues uh, that often has very little to do with your physical surroundings. But in this context where we're um, forced to only be able to escape with our minds and our work and our creativity and our uh, you know, self-improvement, uh, it is very quarantine-themed in that she, you know, channeled her angst during this time into this album. A lot of us, I think, have done a lot of different things to cope with being uh, stuck and isolated and lonely and away from the people we love and... Um, you know, like I said, a lot of times when I was like doing ads for, you know, companies that have courses and um, I just, uh, she said very early on, like something about getting back to basics and doing what we love at our core. And when we're, you know, kind of suffering and struggling, we, we um, uh, are sometimes like our truest selves. And I, and I think that's kind of the full circle thing for me is um, uh, the importance of, you know, like for hundreds of years, like these poets, like since the beginning of time, not just hundreds of years, uh, uh, creativity and art and self-expression and personal relationships and these things that um, are universal experiences we all have and navigate through are what gives life such meaning. And um, when, you know, you're restricted from things and uh, things are put back into perspective in a way that you once wanted to escape the chaos of having so much available to you, but when that availability is gone, do you still want to escape? What are you escaping? And um, how can we ask ourselves these existential questions and answer them through art 
and 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 share and 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 express ourselves in ways that can get through to other people and help them process and feel less alone and I think I see the lakes being a good capstone because it's almost like um the lakes is her is her destination where she wants to go to get away from it all uh but in writing this album she was forced to be away from it all and realize that's not necessarily maybe what she wanted <clears throat> but she can still romanticize about the cottage and romanticize about the lakes and I think sometimes our escape plan our backup plan, our destination. It's not always about us actually getting there. It's about us working toward that idea, romanticizing and fantasizing about that idea. And maybe for her, it was less about the location and the lakes itself and more about finding that person that she can escape and run away with when it's all too much, you know? I don't really know. Uh, but for me, the lakes is... Um, I, I, I don't see it as being... She kind of said it ties in so much of the album... Like, this has everything, nature, emotional instability, or like whatever she said. Uh, <clears throat> but I actually, I don't actually see it being that, uh, tying that much together with the album. I kind of see it more so being the ultimate inverse metaphor for what we're uh, going through. And the reason, Gina, this album she kept saying was born out of isolation. And the to end with a song that she wrote about dreaming of isolation uh, following an album that was written out of in spite of that very isolation i just find to be um interesting and to represent the, the great contradiction i think many of us feel in this time i think I, I i don't know we feel robbed of our joy of our personal relationships of our lives of travel of the sources of things that um, give our life such uh, meaning and help us write the the narratives and the memories and experiences that are our personal uh, forms of folklore but in a weird way we're all kind of collectively universally living a piece of folklore in the history of the world in the history of the united states of this time is like this isn't as we all know unprecedented and uh it, i don't know as i was finishing out this uh show i was like there's something interesting to uh, being so frustrated and wishing away all of this so badly and um it's awful i don't i want it to be over too but it's going to be interesting to look back on and to revisit the very folklore we wrote and the ways we adapted and changed during this time not in a way that i romanticize or silver lining any of it i hate all of that none of this needed to happen but i do think there's something interesting where it's so hard to uh, recognize and realize you're in significant moments while they're happening and so often the significance is extracted through a memory or a tale told in retrospect, as many do with folklore. Um, but even in our moments of isolation, even when we feel like we're not doing much, even when we feel like our life is not as rich and we're being robbed of the things we love and bring us joy, in a strange way, life is marked by those things, by their presence or their absence. And uh, either way, we're writing a form of folklore. Either way, this is a something baked into our stories and I either way I guess it's up to us what we ultimately do with it and um I apparently uh, pull all-nighters as a 33 year old woman to exhaustively talk about things Taylor Swift makes that end up being longer than the actual thing Taylor Swift made that you should probably just watch and not listen to my commentary on but I figure since the holidays are weird this year I know a lot of you I saw in the Facebook group are celebrating alone I'm just trying to put out you know 
pump out some solid hours of content in the event. Uh, you'll allow me to sit at your table. I don't. I would be so honored. Um, the best table is the one you're sitting at. Remember that. There uh, is always a way to make things interesting or meaningful or to treat yourself or even if you find minutes, nay, seconds, where you can do something nice for yourself, treat yourself, get all the, you know, it's, and honestly, I, and rather than a turkey, I'd love to just have a few bites of like all my favorite fast foods or takeouts, you know, and then just eat it throughout the week. That sounds actually kind of amazing. Um, uh, or, you know, uh, I should make a list of my formal internet rabbit holes. I just don't want anybody to feel lonely. Please don't feel, I, 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 I think that like, you know, we can choose how much stock we put in holidays. They don't always have to be the holidays, jolliest, coziest, most well-decorated. Like the holidays can really mess with your head. And I don't want people to overthink it or like it needs to be something special. They need to make sure to spark joy or do something for themselves. But rather, um, I just, I just don't want people to feel isolated or alone or, um, I don't know. I just think that uh, the trappings aside, the decorations aside, the food aside, um, I think the real thing we're being robbed of is like togetherness, right? And um, human connection. And these things are important for our mental health. And while I almost embarrassingly can be kept warm by the company of a super lengthy Reddit thread, I know not everybody is that big of a loser and wants actual human interaction. So I hope you can Zoom or FaceTime some people, listen to me, chat your ear off. Uh, and uh, I actually should put on the Facebook group a list of my favorite internet rabbit holes, one of which is uh, a game called GeoGuessr that I'm obsessed with that drops you in the middle of the world in Google Earth and based on context clues, you have to figure out where you are and it's so fun and you learn a lot about language and stuff. Um, and the other one is like a list of strangest Wikipedia articles. It's super long and it will last you hours. <laughs> and those are things I like to do when I'm feeling anxious. But I, I want to both consume and learn something you do not do here at the Be There in Five podcast. We don't learn a thing. We live, we laugh, we love, we lurk. We lake. Long Lake did things for me. Uh, this was good for the soul. I hope you enjoyed it too. Thank you for listening to this recap. God willing, you made it this far. <laughs> I'm just going to go back through and like arbitrarily cut a 10-minute chunk somewhere because it's just too long. Uh, but I love you. Thank you for everything. Happiest Thanksgiving. I am so thankful for you. Take good care of yourself. This weekend will pass if you're not having the best time. If you are having the best time, I'm happy for you, and I hope you're doing so safely. I'm going to play a bit of a song from my favorite, uh, one of my favorite YouTube channels, Music Maestro Mashups. It's also in the episode notes. This is a mashup, but actually, um, Exile and the, oh wait, no, it's The Lakes and The Last Time, and I thought it was interesting. Sometimes these mashups are chaotic, but sometimes they work. And, um, you know, it's kind of poetic when you think about The Lakes and her wanting that to like be her last time, you know, her last destination, if you will. If you'd ever consider sharing with a friend if you like this episode, just send it to them or, I don't know, like post it on your story. If you're private, tag me. That'd be awesome. I just don't know how to grow. It's hard to grow a podcast. There's a lot of podcasts out there. And, you know, I'm not above, uh, you know, pursuing some Kevin Kennedy cut cone knives uh, pyramid scheme tactics. But for now, I figure I'll try a word of mouth. So if you wouldn't mind sharing, that'd be awesome. And rating and reviewing five stars like makes a huge difference on iTunes too. I, I shall let you go. But man, I had a great time. I, I was—I I really wanted to folk more, and we really did today. I hope this isn't the last time I'm telling you this, if I'm honest, because I'd like more folklore content. I can't get enough. And how lucky am I to have such a fun audience that's willing to do full archaeological digs on every single piece of content she gives us. God bless. I feel like Indiana Jones, you know? It's an, it's, it's an excavation. <laughs> I'm more like Indiana Jones, New York, probably, you know? Like, uh, 
a, a stylish archaeologist that wears sensible uh, clothing from Dillard's. Uh, anyway, you guys, <laughs> I love you. I'll talk to you next week. As always, let me know your thoughts, and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. <laughs> <laughs>